brother a goddamn shit sucking vampire. Well, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. Welcome to episode 138 of GBW Podcast. My name is Josh, trying to hold it together, and with me as always is Chris. Hello. Hello. Feels like just yesterday we did this. Oh yeah, well not quite yesterday. Oh no, we're, we're, uh, we don't want to lift the curtain here too much. <laughs> two weeks from the last time we recorded. Yeah, yes, two weeks. <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, uh, summer. And maybe in those two weeks since we last recorded, uh, a certain somebody who told me that I, they were sold on Tarantulas the Deadly Cargo has watched it by now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Nope, that's not right. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> tarantulas. All right, so let's talk movies. Let's do it. Okay. All right, I'll get started here. Um, so I watched another sequel. You went sequels for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get through all these like half half finished series I started. Oh so God. So I'm trying to just wrap wrap them up. Okay. All right. So okay. So I watched. Again, a timely a timely movie, Rampage: Capital Punishment, from mm. 2014, directed by Uwe Boll. So um, this is the uh, sequel to the um, controversial Rampage, which featured uh, Canadian actor Brendan Fletcher um, ordering a bunch of uh, gear and suiting up and walking down the streets of a small town, blowing everyone away. And um, yeah, I mean, I thought the first one was interesting. I mean, obviously fairly offensive, but um, um, never seen anyone pull off a movie like this um, other than Uwe Boll, who uh, did a similar thing with um, Assault on Wall Street with Dominic Purcell, which was also quite a good movie that I know both of us liked. Yeah. So this this continues the um, exploits of um, Bill Williamson, played by Brendan Fletcher, who is now an internet sensation. And uh, this one, um, it sort of, it opens up sort of the same where he's like, you know, just kind of, there's one, you know, funny in a really dark way scene where he's like, just sort of gets a lawn chair and sits in an alley and just blows everyone away that walks by and then drags their bodies into the, into the alley. And that kind of sets the tone. But the meat of this movie is um, Fletcher in this one um, decides he's going to take, um, take control of the television station so he walks into the tv station um does a bunch of rampaging in in the office and then takes a bunch of the employees hostage and brings them down into kind of a studio kind of or like a storage area almost along with the lead anchor man played by lachlan monroe who's uh again a canadian character actor that you've i'm sure seen in tons of things like uh freddy versus jason and a bunch of other stuff Okay, so he takes over the TV station, um, and he's, you know, there's a lot more of his, you know, there's a lot of ranting in the first one, and this one has even more so, and a lot of it is about, you know, like, um, you know, politics and, uh, 
and how the government's running everything and corporations are running everything and we need to take things over again. So it is kind of timely, but just maybe not in such a sociopathic way as uh, Williams's character. Um, you know, he... Um, you know, he's got an obsession with, like, Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden and exposing government secrets. And he's also got a large following that he's trying to ramp up in this movie. And that's the point of it. He's trying to get a, he's trying to get the station to play a, a message that he's pre-recorded. And then he wants Monroe to interview him on camera. Um, so he's just trying to kind of rally up his troops and ra- ramp them up. And it's actually quite a terrifying notion, if you think about it, that, like, a... A uh, psycho could have like a huge following of psychos, and he could be, um, you know, having having uh, speeches to get them all ramped up to maybe create like a civil war or like political unrest or violence. Um, you know, I, I can't think of any right wing people that would do something like this in our day and age. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, but we have one here. Um, so. I thought actually um, Fletcher, I mean, he's a great actor. He's been in lots of great stuff. Um, I've talked about him before on, on a few occasions. Um, he's excellent in the lead role here. Monroe, I don't usually like him that much, but uh, I thought he played the kind of cocky um, um, anchorman quite well. Um, Fletcher's interactions with some of his hostages is, you know, there's some dark humor going on here. He makes one of them, like, do yoga for example and then ends the ends the exchange with something like there's no place in this world for yoga and then blows the woman away which i thought was pretty funny um but overall i mean i think it's pretty good i think um uva bowl is trying to obviously put a put his politics through and this is where this guy shines i mean i i know everyone thinks he's a terrible director and i've talked about this as well he's not man like i think movies like this show that the guy can direct a competent movie i mean it may not be something you agree with um, and it's certainly offensive, but when he does go into this kind of territory, I do think he does pull off a pretty good job. Um, Bull um, has a uh, cameo, an extended cameo in this, as uh, um, I think as, as Lachlan Monroe's boss, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and Mike Dopehead, another Canadian uh, character actor, does a great job as kind of the leader of the SWAT team. Um, so overall, I thought this was pretty good. I thought it was maybe even stronger than the original because there was a little more to it than just a guy running around killing everyone. Um, the only thing I would say is that it just, I think Bowl goes a little too much in the like kind of preachiness of his message and it kind of comes across that way, like with this political stuff just going so far that it's really kind of being rammed down your throat by the end. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a pretty decent series. Um, it's something different, that's for sure, um, but uh, probably will offend quite a few people. But, um, you know, but for if you're a Brendan Fletcher fan, I definitely would recommend checking out the series. And uh, again, as I said, with the original Rampage, if you've always just gone around uh, calling out Uva Bowl because of House of the Dead and uh, Alone in the Dark, maybe it's time to get over it and uh, check out some of this other stuff he does because he's, he's definitely not as bad as people claim. Is there a is there a third yeah, one, one in more, this? Yeah, there's one more. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it looks like President Down. I think is what it's called. So we'll see what that's all about. But uh, yeah, this was just a smaller movie. Like it wasn't, you know, he was. It was pretty much all in the one location. But yeah, pretty well executed for what it was. Huh. Yeah, I I don't understand why everyone 
gives Ball a lot of crap about being the worst director because Assault on Wall Street was pretty good. And yeah. like he he can like that's the thing. People are just judging him on his video game movies. And he got that reputation because it was all video game nerds who got upset about his video game movies, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot worse directors out there. I can guarantee you that. Like, you know, like he 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 has he knows what he's doing for the most part. It's just sometimes he does it quick and easy, and it doesn't work out the way it should. But. Yeah, and when he's relying on visual effects, I think that's his downfall. He's probably cheaping out on that. But, I mean, movies like this and uh, Tunnel Rats and Assault on Wall Street, there's there's really not much CGI in those. It's just a story about some someone that's or a couple of people that are in a predicament. And, uh, you know, I was definitely, you know, Dominic's Purcell character in, in Wall Street was certainly not a, a, like, you could relate to him, but he was a bad mm-hmm. guy at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking forward to like Stoic was another one that was supposed to be pretty good, and uh, there's a Darfur movie, so I'm, I'm definitely he's an interesting director, that's for sure. All right, so that yeah. is Rampage. Rampage, Capital Punishment. Okay, well, I'm gonna start because uh, right around the time that we are recording this, uh, I found out that uh, director Joel Schumacher passed away. Yeah. And uh, this is a guy who I think is like Uwe Ball, but in maybe more of a grander scale, gets shit on a bit too much. Like, I think he's a better director than he's really given credit for. And I think a lot of the reason that people think he's a bad director is because of his Batman movies. I mean, let's be honest. Like, Which Batman, I like. <laughs> Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, I'm not a huge fan of them myself. But, I mean, you can't judge the guy from that. I mean, he has falling down to his credit he's got tigerland which is a really great like vietnam war movie he's got phone booth which showed up on my underrated 90s episode and of course he's got the movie i'm about to talk about because i was looking to revisit something and i was like well i'll revisit the obvious one and that's of course 1987's lost boy the lost boys which is what i'm going to talk about um a movie that i like fine but don't understand the ardent following and love for this movie like if you're talking 1987 vampire movies i prefer catherine bigelow's near dark by a by like a big margin like i really do like near dark is the best vampire movie that came out in 1987 lost boys is more like a um so if near dark is like this really is like the jambalaya of vampire movies Friggin' Lost Boys is like the cotton candy of vampire movies, basically. Because, (laughs) you know, it's a movie that was known for its soundtrack. It was known for its styling of the Lost Boys because they were like kind of, they were like a mixture of punk with like Hamlet stage play costumes and mullets. You know, they, they weren't really like, they didn't look like vampires. Whereas in Near Dark, they were like grungy and... They had, their clothes were dirty and they were hiding out from the sunlight. And in this one, it's just basically we're party boys who just happen to be vampires, kind of. Um, so I I know you like this less than me, which is yeah. fine. I mean, I, I know that. But I, I don't think this is an awesome movie myself. Like, I'm, I find it enjoyable, but it's not a movie I go back to at all that often. And I don't love it as much as a lot, like I said. But I do like the soundtrack for this. 
I do like that the opening scene is the is the camera swooping over water towards the boardwalk of of Santa Carla and like cry little sisters playing and I'm like I like that stuff um, and we're introduced to these two brothers played by uh, Corey Haim and Jason Patrick and their mom Diane Wiest who are moving to this town because uh, you know they're they're going through a divorce and they're going to live with their grandpa and they are going to send a Carla to live. And while they're passing the road sign on the back of it, someone spray painted murder capital of the world. And, uh, turns out the reason that's like that is because it's a, it's a, it's a little California village that's plagued by a vampire gang led by the, uh, very charismatic Keith or Sutherland. Um, yeah. So, so, I love the establishing moments of this movie. Like I love how when they queue up Echo and the Bunnymen's cover of People Are Strange, it's like shots of the boardwalk and it's shots of all the carnival rides and the and the carnival games and and all the punk rockers and miscreants who are hanging out around the area and it's just giving a slice of life of that area and I really love that stuff. You know like like girls skateboarding down the street and punk rockers sitting there and laughing and drinking beers and kids riding on merry-go-rounds. I'm like, yeah, I love that kind of establishing shots. And then, you know, and then of course we've got your favorite, our oiled up muscly saxophone dude who shows up to sing. I still believe. And which has been made into a internet meme now where they've edited. it So it looks like Jason Patrick is lusting after the oily saxophone dude instead of kind of, is in the movie well no he's more <laughs> looking at jamie gertz is star Maybe off that's in the all movie. like all i can think of now is the beam <laughs> it, it could be so um so like i said it's a very slickly directed big studio production um you've got the two brothers moving the town vampire gang led by keith or Sutherland, which includes alex winter from the bill and ted movies as one of his gang members who and Jamie Gertz as star who becomes like this girl that Jason Patrick wants to get with, who is also the way to initiate him into the vampire gang. And it just becomes Jason Patrick's character dealing with becoming a vampire, Corey Haim being like, Oh, there's something going on. We got to stop the vampires. And then of course, Corey Feldman and his other cohort as the frog brothers joining up to fight off vampires in the finale. So that's, Basic plot, basic plot, just, you know, youth vampire gang set pieces, things like that. Um, you know, I, I, I thought there was some fun stuff in this. I thought there was a pretty cool motorbike race through the through the dark forest that was well done. Um, I thought Sutherland was cool in this, but he wasn't in it nearly enough. Like, yeah. he wasn't. And also, the entire time I was watching, I'm like, yeah, Kiefer is pretty cool. But you know what this movie really needs it needs the ultimate 80s, like, teenage badass James Spader to be playing <laughs> the main vampire in this. Like, tough turf. The new yeah. kids. This guy knows how to play a fucking sleazeball. Why is he not a yeah. sleazeball vampire in The Lost Boys? I ask you. Sure, he's not as pretty boys, Kiefer, but he probably would have nailed it. He probably would have nailed it. Um, so, and and then, like I said... I don't get the appeal of the Frog Brothers at all. Yeah. Because they're like the kids who work in the comic book store and know there's vampires and know how to have all the tips for killing them. And there's this comedic scene that's done where they try and try and prove that uh, 
the uh, guy that Corey Haim's mom is dating is a vampire where they like sneak garlic into his food and like splash holy, holy water on him and all this stuff and unnecessary comedy I thought I didn't really like mm-hmm. that scene um, and then the love story stuff between Patrick and, and, and Jamie Gertz I thought was pretty lame and uh, I thought Patrick himself was pretty lame I mean I, I have an issue with Jason Patrick I don't really find him that appealing as an actor like mm. this and Rush, I really didn't find, you know, I didn't like him in either of those movies particularly. Like in this, he's okay, but he's constantly overshadowed by everyone else. And that's yeah, sad right. when he's the main focus of the movie. Um, and, and like I said, you know, the final showdown offers some decent FX work and vamp killing and the quotable line, death by stereo from Haim. But. Mm. It's a movie that's entertaining and solid, but like I said, if I'm going to watch an 80s vampire movie, I'm going to watch Near Dark every time yeah. over this yeah. one. You know, so I think Schumacher knew how to make a flashy, entertaining, big budget vampire movie, and I think he succeeds on that level, and I think that's why this movie has the kind of love it has. But for me personally, it's a movie that I'll watch maybe once every five years and be like, yeah, that was pretty fun, and then be like, move on to something else so you know yeah i mean it's it's definitely better than the two really bad direct video sequels that came out to over 20 years later but it's it's just like one of those movies where you can throw it on in an evening have a fun 90 something minutes with it and then you know be like okay that's my every 10 year viewing of the lost boys what's next yeah so i mean i i i i don't know if you talked about this on the show or if we or if you just watched it and were like, yeah, and told me like, yeah, I don't really like The Lost Boys that much. Yeah, like, oh, I feel like the same as you. Like, I don't, I don't have a, like a problem with it. Yeah. But I, I don't get the, the following. Like, it's not that good. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's fine, but. Yeah. It, and I just never really, I never wanted to be Kiefer Sutherland or anything. You know, like I was, yeah, like I wanted to be Lance Hendrickson or Bill Paxton in Near Dark, but. Uh, but it didn't, yeah, like the vampires in this, they're, they're just not like that, they're not appealing, they're not like, they don't have that allure that some vampires have, you know? Come on, dude, you didn't want to hang upside down in a deserted cave with a monster go home poster in the background? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing I noticed, just on a side note, is that I was, I was looking at the friggin' set designs on this, I'm like, whoever did the set design on these bedrooms and stuff is, it's like totally grasping for whatever was popular at the time because in Corey Haim's bedroom which is in their grandpa's house so I don't know why his bedroom's done up like a teenage boys room you've got a poster of Molly Ringwald you've got a poster of Rob Lowe on the door to the closet where he's wearing a half shirt and I'm like what's what boy's gonna have a picture of Rob Lowe and a half shirt on his closet door like it's it's kind of weird and and then he had a poster I think he had a poster for uh I think it might have been in excess, which makes sense because they are on the soundtrack with right. the song they did with Jimmy Jimmy Barnes' "Good Time," which is a good song. But yeah. um, it's a flashy, slick, big budget Hollywood movie that delivers entertainment, but doesn't really deliver much beyond that for me personally. So yeah, I, I don't get the the super super hardcore love for it but it's a, it's all right i mean i prefer for schumacher movies i definitely prefer falling down phone booth tigerland stuff like that so you know 
it's good, but it's fire. yeah, fuck that movie. <laughs> it's good, but it's not great. Let's just put it yeah. that way. So yeah, yeah, the Lost Boys. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Schumacher. Yeah, he, he certainly was a force up, right? Like 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 his movies are not like everyone that was a movie fan when we were growing up knew who Joel Schumacher was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, rest in peace. Yes, for sure. All right, so um, oh, and another sequel. <laughs> um, <laughs> this sounds like last episode. <laughs> no, it's not really a sequel. You okay, started so with I... three sequels last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I should not do this one then. Do it. No, just do, do it. What um, is it? Okay, so this is um, the second in uh, Fernando de Leo's Milieu trilogy. Um, this is the Italian Connection from 1972 um so this is yeah it's not they're not fucking these aren't related these movies like it's called the milieu trilogy but there's no like characters overlapping they're just three italian crime movies set in milan um so this is the sec this is from the fernando de leo box set that i picked up from raro video which uh i talked about caliber nine a few weeks ago which was fucking awesome and uh this one also fucking awesome um in a bit of a different way um, okay, so this the setup on this one is um, the movie opens with Woody Strode and Henry Silva, two of the baddest of the badasses of the 70s. Um, they're two hitmen who have been brought from New York to Milan to take out this guy named Luca Canali, who uh, was, um, they're, they're after him because he stole a bunch of heroin. Now, what they don't know is that Canali has been framed by the local mob who are the ones who really stole the heroin. So they're after this guy who's like not really understanding why he's got two hitmen after him. I mean, he's kind of a, he's a pimp. He's a bit of a sleazeball, but he's um, certainly not deserving of uh, two really tough hitmen after him. So we, um, we get a really groovy theme song. Really like the music in this one. Um, we're then introduced to Luca's ex-wife and his daughter and um, um, bit of bit of character development there. You know, this guy's sort of likable. Um, the actor that played him, um, Mario Adorf, also was really memorable in Cal- Caliber 9 as a different character. Um, but yeah, I, I recognized him right away. And, and he's definitely uh, an actor that um, does stand out. He's one of those kind of scene stealer type actors, even though he's not the best looking guy in the world. But he can certainly command a scene. And that's right off the bat of this as well. Then we get to a uh, we have to go to a topless bar with um, Silva and, and uh, Strode. There's um, go-go dancers. Uh, there's a woman with blue hair who like tries to who helps them like try and figure out where Canali is. And um, we get introduced to you know Canali. Like I said, he's got this ex-wife. He's a pimp. He's like sleeping with uh, one of his prostitutes on the side, played by uh, Femi Bernuzzi, who. Um, been in lots and lots of um, Italian genre stuff, such as uh, Strip Dude for Your Killer and The Bloodsucker Leads a Dance, to name a couple. Um, she's great. Uh, not not in a lot, but um, we're introduced to their relationship. He's not the best boyfriend in the world, but he's likable enough. Then something happens, and I'll tell you, man, there is this fucking chase scene in the middle of this movie, and it starts off crazy and then it gets into this car chase that just seemed 
super dangerous and uh, like people hanging off the side of a car. There's a scene where uh, Luca jumps onto the hood of a car and like literally headbutts his way through the windshield. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. <laughs> then the car chase ends and then it goes into this fucking crazy ass foot chase and then there's a fist fight. And this goes on for like 10 minutes. This is definitely the selling point of this movie and it's cer- certainly worth the price of admission. Um, some more stuff happens and then they end up in a junkyard and there's a kind of a showdown between uh, Luca and our two headband, which is pretty great as well. Unfortunately, they were in a junkyard and they did not take advantage of the fact that there was a car crusher there. They didn't even show the fucking thing. Uh, they do take advantage of the big magnetic hook that comes down to pick up the cars, but not the car crusher. You're like, if there's going to be a magnetic hook, there better be a fucking car crusher. That's what you're thinking. Yeah, like if you're if you're going to secure a junkyard location, why would you not use the car crusher? I think that's why I love them so much. Because you kind of know, you kind of know. It's kind of like you go to a strip club, you're going to see strippers. You go to a junkyard, you're going to see a car crusher. <laughs> Same fetish, in my opinion. Um, oh, wow. So why would you not use it? <laughs> I was fully expecting someone to fall in one, and it never happened. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But it was still a, a pretty great um, kind of uh, a, a great a great finale. Not quite up to the level of that chase, but still pretty cool. Um, there's there's some great actors in this one um, aside from who I've already talked about we've also got a pair of people from Thunderball um, the Bond movie we've got Adolfo Selly who played the um, um, guy with the eye patch in Thunderball he's in this as um, the, the uh, Don in um, in Italy that um, Strode and uh, Silver are working for uh, we've also got uh, Lucia, Luciano Paluzzi who was also in Thunderball she played the uh, Spectre agent Fiona Volpe. Um, she was awesome. Um, yeah, and, and of course, Silva and Strode. It was, um, it was pretty great. I mean, this is... Um, I thought it was maybe... Uh, I don't know. I, I think they were both really good. They were both really good. These aren't, like... There's more story. There's more, like, build-up in these movies than in some of the others. And I think that's why I liked them more. I mean, I really, really connected with this Luca character. And um, I think that's the strength of DeLeo. Um, I think some of the other movies just lose that, and they just kind of rely more on the exploitation elements and some of the action sequences. But then, you know, those things mean a lot more when you care about someone. And and I I found the the ability to take this guy who has been framed. You you you're kind of rooting for him by the end, even though he's not a dude. And uh, I really really like that. So uh, definitely an anti-hero. Um, but really well done. Um, DeLeo, again, knows knows what he's doing. He knows how to direct action. He knows how to, you know, get drama, like has, have dramatic scenes go on. He knows how to cast well. And he knows how to get good music in, the, in his movies. So, yeah, it's like the whole package here. So, again, um, like if I was going to do, like, recommendations of top Palizio Tecci movies, these would be in my top five at this point in time. They're both great, so highly recommended both of these um, and this box. And I'm assuming the next one, The Boss, also starring Silva, is probably going to be just as good. Well, at least Woody Strode isn't playing a Native American in this one like in Jaguar Lives. <laughs> that Dude, Woody Strode is so badass. I mean, I, I've known him as um, the guy that Kirk Douglas fights in Spartacus, right? And that's kind of like what, what I've always thought of with Woody Strode. But, um, you know, it's it's cool seeing him showing up in other things. And in this one, he was, like, buff. And, and he was, like, the 
Silva was kind of like the the crazy one, and so and uh, Strode was kind of like the the quiet but super tough one. And uh, I thought he was awesome at it. Like when he takes off his jacket to go kick some ass, you're like, oh shit, what he, he's coming. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's a good, it's a great flick. So uh, I am um, really really excited about this box set. Cool. I have. So that's, the, I, that's the Italian connection. I bought the second box set because I couldn't get the first box set on Blu-ray. So uh, I do have the second DeLeo box set from Raro. I did buy that. So. Yeah. I think you bought that too, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm all over this guy right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Like I said, I'm not overly familiar with this uh, type of film. And uh, when I watched Super Bitch, I wasn't overly impressed with that one. So uh, you know. I'm willing to give this guy a shot. It sounds so far he sounds two for two with you, so Yeah, and I've never heard of Super Bitch being named in like when people are talking about the subgenre. It's not one that's I've ever heard come up, you know? Yeah. So maybe it was just a just a not a good choice for, for a first viewing. Maybe not. Okay, so speaking of not good choices, um I'm gonna talk about a uh a movie that made me realize that uh the Chuck Norris I know and love is the Chuck Norris that Canon Films is responsible for. We're talking the Chuck Norris from Invasion USA and, and Missing in Action and, uh, you know, Hero and the Terror and things like that. And, uh, and and to a lesser degree, the Chuck Norris Enforced Vengeance, which isn't a Canon film. This is This movie is the Chuck Norris that I don't like. The movie is from 1978. It's called Good Guys Wear Black. I've never seen it before this viewing. Uh, it's his second star starring role after a movie called Breaker Breaker, which I've talked about in the past, which yeah. was which was pretty good. This one isn't. This one's not that good. And and considering it's directed by Ted Post, mm. who did the the Dirty Harry movie Magnum Force and did Beneath the Planet of the Apes prior to this, I was expecting a hell of a lot more than I got. Um, so. I think this movie they were attempting to maybe make a franchise out of it because in the opening it's like Chuck Norris is John T. Booker in Good Guys Wear Black. And I'm like, okay, so yeah, you're saying the character's name, so obviously you might want to spin this into a franchise. And then there's these weird. Yeah, John T. Booker. It sounds kind of like a a good action hero name. Um, Credits are this weird computer graphics where it's like, it's like fuzzy colors and line drawings fighting each other while there's this jazz score going on in the background. And I'm like, what have I stumbled my way into? And then we flash to 1973 Paris and there's a conference going on there. And it's a conference between all these countries who are like, we need to get these Vietnam POWs released. And I'm like, automatically movie, you're cramming in too much politics for a Chuck Norris movie. What are you doing? You're like, have all these characters talking about sanctions and like all this stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 don't want this. And then, of course, Chuck is a leader of a platoon. He sent him with his squad on a rescue mission to get the POWs. I'm like, this is going to be good. I'm having a hard time getting into this movie right off the bat because of all the political rambling going on. But then this gunfight with the Viet Cong, I'm just like, even this isn't that exciting. <laughs> and I'm like, I think it's not exciting because it's badly staged. It's like 
them running around in the dark with a couple of huts. Then sometimes the huts catch fire and there's machine guns going off. I'm like, this is not, you know, this isn't missing in action right here for fuck's sake. If this was missing in action, I'd be totally in. I mean, I don't see a bazooka anywhere in sight right now. I'm like, you're just running in with your freaking AKs or whatever and, and shooting everything. No, no. Um, so that rescue mission goes down and then we have, it's five years later and uh, I got to say, in that rescue mission, Ch- uh, Chuck Norris is clean shaven, which I found was really fucking weird. Like, yes. no facial hair whatsoever. I'm like, this is strange. I mean, I saw it in Return of the Dragon, obviously. But, I mean, at least in Return of the Dragon, to make up for the fact that he had no facial hair, he had tons of back hair. Oh, so yeah. at, least there's, at least there's that going on, right? <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, five years later... We have this really long, long, drawn-out scene of this car racing around a track. And then, who's behind the wheel? Of course, our man Chuck, but now he's got a mustache. So I'm like, okay, cool. Now Chuck's got some facial hair. This might <laughs> might turn for the better. Um, and then along comes Anne Archer from Fatal Attraction, among other yeah. films, as a reporter who right off the bat is heavily flirting with him upon their first meeting. And, and, you know, and I'm like, OK, so automatically you've put a reporter in there for the love interest. And this reporter actually, like, sleeps with him after they've been together for a day. And I'm like, why is she doing this? Why is she sleeping with him? Why is she tagging along with him on this convoluted plot? I never quite understood. The same thing happened, going. I think, in the oct- octagon, like the really? exact same thing. Like a reporter. Yeah, the reporter and then boom, in bed. <laughs> and, and the thing is. This movie is so plot heavy. And I'm like, hang on, hang on. You've got Chuck Norris in this. You never make a Chuck Norris movie that relies on him to act because he can't fucking act. You just don't do it. He can kick ass till the cows come home. But this guy can't act. It's just Chuck Norris like saying his lines with vacant stares off to the camera like, nope, look at, oh, I said my line. Now I'm staring at the camera. When can I kick someone's butt next? So, you know, and I'm just like, okay. They sleep together. She's tagging along. My notes right now, I'm looking at my notes. I wrote down, fuck, this is dull. And Chuck doesn't even kick anyone. Halfway through this movie, he has not karate kicked anybody in this entire (laughs) fucking movie. It becomes this big, like, conspiracy thing where it's like, somebody's trying to kill off. It's killing off all the members of his platoon. Who's doing it? Chuck has to find out. So which leads him to I, – I think they were trying to also make this John T. Booker into kind of a, a James Bond type character in a way because he goes off to Squaw Valley to a ski hill. And I'm like, oh, fucking right. There's going to be some Chuck skiing down a hill and doing fucking flips and, and kicking ass. And there's a snowmobiling cha- a snowmobile chase, and even that's unexciting. And I'm like, does Ted Post not know how to do – bigger action sequences like i know he knows how to do action sequences in dirty harry movies but does he not know how to do this that happens that doesn't a, belong in a chuck norris movie like, like a, a, a snowmobile thing or a snowmobile thing yeah no it seems off yeah and then you know you've got a plane blows up and i'm like 
ho hum. We've got Chuck briefly kicking people's ass at this at this like warehouse. I'm like ho hum. You've got the scene that everyone remembers from this movie, and the only thing people remember from this movie where Chuck leaps feet first through the windshield of a car. I'm like, okay, that's all right, I guess. It's no fucking show Kazugi jumping through the friggin' front of a car window and like uh, Revenge of the Ninja, but it'll do. Or headbutting the car window. Yeah, or headbutting the car window. <laughs> and I, I was just, this just was not good, man. Like, not good. Like, I really, really have now realized that the Chuck I like is the canon film's Chuck. Because yeah. I don't really particularly like anything he did before that. I mean, Lone Wolf McQuaid's okay, and I guess Force Vengeance is pretty good. But, like, early Chuck, like... 70s Chuck, like a force of one. Good guys wear black. I haven't seen the Octagon, but I think you thought that was okay. The Octagon was pretty good. Yeah, but this is like, you don't get a guy who can't act to be in a plot-heavy movie. You just don't. And that's the problem with good guys wear black, is there's too much plot, not enough action. Ann Archer basically going gaga over Chuck Norris, and I'm like, you're fucking married to Michael Douglas. What in Fatal Attraction? What, what like come on, no no comparison here. <laughs> like like it's Chuck Norris, man. The guys, the, if he's not gonna get you with his right wing politics, he's gonna get you with his fucking mustache or something. I guess I have no idea. But yeah, I, I didn't like this one. I really didn't. I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's just not my it thing. May have when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. It's been all, if I have ever seen it, it's been a long time. So I love the title. And now I'm trying to figure out what movie he slept with the reporter, and I think it might have been missing in action now that I'm thinking about it. But, you know, I haven't seen this one. Those early Czech movies have always kind of eluded me, too. It, for me, it starts with Force Vengeance. Well, yeah, me too. Like, Good Guys Wear Black, great title. Pretty cool cover because it's just a close-up of Chuck wearing, like, aviator sunglasses. Yeah. Like, just reflected sunglasses. Cool. Nothing in this movie is as cool as that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, oh, it's a... Bad. It's a bummer, and uh, I can't recommend it even for Chuck Completus because you'll be bored. You'll be bored. Where did you see it? DVD. Oh, nice. Yeah, HBO put even, it out I don't on DVD. Remember, yeah, I don't even remember a, like a digital release of this. So. Dude, it's a snapper case HBO DVD. <laughs> oh, no. That's how old it is. <laughs> wow. Nice. Well, at least it was anamorphic widescreen. There you go. <laughs> one positive <laughs> wow that's not, not saying much <laughs> no alright what's next <laughs> alright why don't we talk about another sequel <laughs> <laughs> why don't we <laughs> one day you'll just have well, a fucking episode that all it is is sequels we should actually just do a fucking episode that all both of us watch are sequels oh god and we'll call it. We'll uh, call it. Yep, we just watched all sequels. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this one I can't really get away. Like now, you know, because I'm doing the Universal Classic Monster thing. There, I'm gonna have a sequel every episode pretty much for the next, mm-hmm. you know, thirty episodes. <laughs> okay. But uh, all right. So this one, uh, we've we've. Um, We've gone past the the Lemley era, like Carl Lemley era, like I talked about last episode, 
which ended with Dracula's daughter. Uh, so three years later, um, by fluke, um, you know, Universal was kind of struggling because it was under new ownership, kind of struggling. By fluke, a theater decided to do a back-to-back of Dracula and Frankenstein, and it was a huge hit, and um, tons of people came out. They decided to release us who is a double bill across the country, therefore reigniting the Universal Monsters in 1939. So the first movie that they decided to make was um, 1939's Son of Frankenstein, um, directed by Roland V. Lee, who um, did a movie called Tower of London, I believe in the same year with a lot of the same cast, which I've never seen, but I I definitely am curious about it. Um, So this one opens with a dark and stormy night. Um, We're in the, I guess town from the original Frankenstein uh, the town people are all mad at, at the name Frankenstein because of what happened in Frankenstein and, and Bride of Frankenstein oh it's like everybody being uh, mad at Camp Crystal Lake in the Friday the 13th movies exactly exactly <laughs> so in this one we've got Frankenstein's one of his sons coming back to the town um, this time his name is uh, Baron Wolf von Frankenstein and he's played by Basil Rathbone. Uh, most people know him as Sherlock Holmes, um, um, particularly in The Hound of the Baskervilles, which came out in the same year. Um, so this is right before Rathbone kind of became known as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so he comes into town with his wife and his little kid. Um, they go back to the Frankenstein home, and um, they're kind of dealing with the town being all angry and stuff. Um, one thing I noticed right off the bat in this movie was the sets. Um, this one, the sets are, you know, they, they all seemed extremely, like, large. And, and again, I talked about it a bit before, but the whole, like, um, German expressionism thing really amped up in this one with, you know, kind of odd, even odd camera angles. But, like, you know, uh, you know uh, there were, like, you know, some of the things just were too... They seem too big for the room or like the doors seem too small for the room and just kind of this left you with this really kind of unsettling uh, feeling as you were watching everything but it was also pretty stunning just looking at looking at this the art direction in this movie so and, and throughout the whole movie I was this so that was great um, okay so then we're um, Rathbone's kind of walking around the castle and then he stumbles across Igor played by Bela Lugosi and this is the first time um, I've seen, well, I've seen White Zombie and stuff like this, but um, in the Universal Monster stuff, like, Bella's, you know, kind of coming back to the fold. Um, he played the original Dracula, of course, but he played Igor in this, which I thought was weird. But holy shit, man, he was so good in this. Like, I think this is the best role I've seen to go see in. And he completely stole the show from everyone, including Karloff. <laughs> and it was pretty pretty awesome to see. So I loved Lugosi in this. Um, they then find that the Frankenstein's monster has, is living in, or is kind of in a coma in this, like, crypt underneath the castle. And uh, they decide, uh, so Baron Frankenstein uh, decides, you know what, Frankenstein's got a really bad name in this town, I'm going to bring the monster back to life to show that he's not such a bad guy. And of course that doesn't really pan out too well. And the main reason it doesn't pan out too well is because Lugosi's character, Igor, has um, decides to use the monster to kind of go after people that did 
didn't like him. So he's using the monster as like a instrument of death. Because Igor, like part of the thing about him that's so cool is that he, um, I guess, was hung for grave robbing after the events of the first few movies. So he's Lugosi's walking around with his like pretty much like broken neck. So he sicks Frankenstein all the people that were on the jury that got him hung. So it's pretty great. And it's poor, so poor you know Frankenstein's son is trying to like do good whereas Lugosi's in the background fucking everything up Frankenstein to kill people and I I thought it was a pretty cool plot actually we've also got an inspector named Inspector Crow played by Lionel Atwill and um, his story was that he had in one of the in the past Frankenstein's monster had torn off his arm so he's like he's kind of like the kind of the moral compass if you will and him and wrath will play off each other quite a bit um and um but i thought he was great as well and i I did think they were a little maybe a little too much many scenes with them but i did i actually watched this twice um just because i i think i thought i'd missed quite a bit so i watched it again i ended up really liking the relationship between these two and also the relationship between Lugosi and Karloff. Um, now, I haven't talked about Karloff too much. So he's back again. Um, Jack Pierce makeup again. So he looks just as great as he did in the other two movies. Um, looks slightly different in that he has a, he's wearing a fur kind of top, which I thought was kind of weird. But I did recognize that look from old monster movies or monster uh, books that I've read. Um, but I, I thought I thought Karloff was awesome in this as well. Um, yeah, this is a really good one. Um, definitely up there, and I wasn't expecting to like it, especially with the over 90-minute running time that I was concerned about. Um, but yeah, the look of the film, the, the interplay between uh, Atwell and Rathbone, the interplay between Lugosi and Karloff, um, yeah, this was a pretty good movie, and uh, um, enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. Um, it also had probably one of the cutest little kids I've seen in old-time movies, um, and it turned out that the little kid, um, Peter, uh, played by Donnie Dunnigan, was actually the voice of uh, Bambi in the original Bambi. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, which is kind of a little bit of trivia. Um, but yeah, totally uh, totally would recommend checking this one out. So I, was, I thought after Dracula's Daughter that the series was going to start to drop, because I do know it drops at some point. But this is certainly not the point. This is right up there with the other ones. I just so, want to see. Yeah, I, I just want to see Lugosi being like, "Kill him, kill him." <laughs> pretty much, it's, he's pretty great, man. Like I, uh, I, I love Lugosi in this. It's definitely my favorite Lugosi role. I just want to see. The, I just see the Frankenstein guy at like the town meeting. Come on, man! Frankenstein monster's not so bad. What's your problem? He's a pretty chill monster, man. He's cool. <laughs> He'll help you carry your groceries home. And meanwhile, Belugos is like, "Ah, oh, he's not so good. Look, he just killed someone down the street." <laughs> but, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds. It's sounds true. Good. And I and yeah, there were some pretty good callbacks too, right? Like if you're a fan of the original, like I am, like that's probably my favorite. Um, but like the there's a very classic scene in the original where Frankenstein throws this little girl into a lake and there's a really intense scene of the dad carrying the girl's body through the town Yeah. and uh, in this one they bring back that actor and this is like 10 years later no, 6 years, 7 years later they bring back that actor and Frankenstein kills him off but um, spoiler alert but uh, I, did, I just thought little touches like that like bringing that, that actor back I thought that was really cool so 
yeah, I wasn't expecting to like this at all, but I, I thought it was great. It's definitely right up there with, with the uh, with the other ones I've talked about. Nice. Well, yeah. let's let's talk about a... Um, <laughs> I don't even... Man. So, this movie from 1964 was a 68-minute film. It was called Surf Party. <laughs> and <laughs> it was basically 20th Century Fox's answer to... American International Pictures highly successful beach party film of the prior year. So even back in the 60s, people were cribbing on what was popular at the time. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't like, oh, Asylum's like, oh, there's a, there's a beach movie coming out. We better this is like 20th Century Fox going all Asylum and being like, let's make a, let's make a surfing movie because that's what's <laughs> cool right now. So this is your typical thing. Uh, it's got musical numbers. It's got, you know, and a little bit of surfing, and it's got, of course, music music stars cast as actors. So in this one, it's Bobby Vinton, most, mostly known for Blue Velvet, taking his first starring role in a film. Uh, we've also got Jackie DeShannon playing one of the girls in the group. She's mostly known for singing uh, What the World Needs Now is Love and Put a Little Love in Your Heart. She's in this movie, too. Um, basically what this, the, the basic plot, and I say basic cause it's a 68 minute movie. So how much fucking plot are you going to get in, in an hour and eight minutes? Really? Um, it's three girl pals from Harris, from Arizona heading in a camper to California to learn how to surf basically. So, you know, early scenes are them pulling up to the beach, parking on the beach, singing an awkwardly lip syncing a song called never coming back which is super repetitive while they're in their camper like never coming back never come back just over and over again and that turns out that one of the, one of their brothers uh uh is like a surfer like he's like a surfer dude and but he's also like a gigolo ladies man kind of thing so like oh we'll go to his house and he'll show us how to surf but of course he's too busy trying to get the ladies so in comes Bobby Vinton as Len, who's the owner of the local surf shop, and he teaches them how to surf. And, of course, there's, like, other surfers who show up who become love interests. And, of course, there's a suit-wearing cop, a square cop, as it is, called Sergeant Neal, played by Richard Crane, who, of course, hates surfers. Because in these movies, everybody hates surfers that isn't a surfer. Um, so that's basic plot. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a lot of forgettable music numbers, there's dancing, and there's some minor conflict. Like, there's a fist fight between uh, Bobby Vinton's character and the and uh, the brother, and uh, <laughs> that seems pretty funny because they're at a party, everyone's dancing and having fun, and then a fist fight breaks out, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the surfer guy's sister bursts into the room, and she's also kind of dating Bobby Vinton's character, and she's like don't he had a head injury you could kill him and i'm like when did he have a head injury in this movie no one said anything about a head injury up to this point like what head injury i would have maybe liked to have known that he had a head injury but i have no idea what's going on um so it's it's like you know it gives bobby vinton a, a musical number where he sings a song called if i were an artist which is kind of like a love song but it's also has him like kind of drawing pictures on a surfboard with the tip of his finger and i'm like okay whatever um and it's it's just it's just a slight look at 
the culture, the California surfer culture of the 60s. And it was totally riffing on the Beach Party movies, but it doesn't benefit from having Annette and Frankie in it because those two at least had charisma and were good together. And the songs were okay. And they were just, and they had Eric Von Zipper, who was like a Marlon Brando, the Wild Ones kind of ripoff because he had a motorbike and a leather jacket. And, you know, it had that. This has nothing really. Like, it's just, like, it's just so slight and so forgettable and there's barely any surfing and even at 68 minutes it felt super long and the close-ups when they're surfing were so ridiculous because at least they were ridiculous in beach party but in surf party they're really ridiculous they're like just you and i standing in front of a screen going whoa 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 that's what it is in this um so yeah it's it's a pretty forgettable time uh, weak acting, but at least Patricia Morrow, who plays Terry, who's the sister of the surfer, who's Vinton's love interest. At least she's pretty cute to look at. And I actually found out she went on to be like a co-star in this show Peyton Place in the yeah. in the 60s and 70s and a few other movies, forgettable movies here and there. But uh, yeah, I watched this on TCM. I spent 68 minutes with it. I won't. I won't remember anything about it after I finish <laughs> talking about it on this podcast. But yeah, it is what it is. It's Surf Party. If you really, really are curious about 60s surfing beach culture, California movies, stick with the AIP series. You'll have a lot more fun. You really will. This is just bland and forgettable. And yeah. So yeah, Surf Party. <laughs> <laughs> hey it's still more entertaining than good guys wear black <laughs> okay i'm going to talk about a couple of uh horror movies from the 70s um so the first one i'm going to continue <laughs> i'm going to continue my mill creek set is it a um, sequel no it's not a sequel <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, but uh, man, I man, I love this Mill Creek set. Oh my god. Holy okay, shit, this man. one. Every week you're like, oh man, this is the best investment ever. Dude, I I don't understand why everyone's not buying this thing. It's fifty dollars. Um, okay. <laughs> so this time around. <laughs> it's fifty dollars. <laughs> it's the best fifty dollars you'll ever spend. Okay, it's um, Mill Creek should be giving me a kickback, by the way. Um, okay. So this time around, it's the terror. It's terror from 1978, directed by Norman J. Warren. Um, and I've talked about Norman J. Warren recently um, with a movie called Prey. Um, I wasn't really familiar with this guy's work other than his name, and Prey blew me away. I got the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, and and then this one. And I was like, oh. And when I was looking at the um, titles i'm like oh fuck terror great you know um but i didn't i didn't realize it was a norman j warren movie but even then i'm like uh terror yay (laughs) okay so i threw this on yeah unfortunately titled um okay so this is written by david mcgillivray um who uh also wrote schizo which i've talked about recently as well and (laughs) man this this guy's stuff is is out there so uh, and very very enjoyable so it opens with this um this kind of like scene back in the day um like back in the like 1800s or whatever and there was like this this guy there's this group of guys and they're like setting up this like bear trap for some reason and then we see like all these like 
cultists kind of marching in the background with torches and then this woman's being chased and she fucking runs into the bear trap and gets her her leg caught and then ends up she's a witch and she gets fucking put on a on a pyre and they start burning the pyre and then the people that were burning her they end up going back to their home and then this like the witch comes back and fucking decapitates someone and i'm like oh my god what an opening and then it all turns out that it was actually uh, it was actually just a film within a film um, being shown at this like dinner party of of like you know seventies like socialite people, and it, I don't didn't really I guess I guess the guy that owns the house is a filmmaker and he made this movie about this curse that's on his house and that's what that opening sequence was. So we're introduced to him. His name is James, and then very quickly. Um, at the party they decide they're going to start um, this there's this guy they're doing hypnosis tricks so he's like hypnotizing people and getting them to do certain things um, so then the guy decides because um, uh, James's cousin Anne is a skeptic he decides he's going to hypnotize her so he hypnotizes her and she walks over to the wall and grabs the sword that was used in the decapitation in the opening sequence and she grabs the sword in a trance and starts trying to like stab her brother and you're like, what the hell's going on? And um, then the party ends, and everyone's kind of uncomfortable because there was this like familial, almost murder happening. Um, this blonde that was there um, decides to go. Uh, she starts. I think she's walking home or some shit. She starts getting chased and um, ends up getting murdered in a kind of a giallo style way. So a lot's happened in the first 15 minutes of this movie. That woman was played by Glynis Barber. Don't know her much about her other than she was in Edge of Sanity with uh, Anthony Perkins. Okay, so then we're introduced to there's this murder happens where we start to get into the, kind of the story of James, the filmmaker and his filmmaking friends. He owns this studio where they're like shooting like softcore portos on the side like I guess like to rent out the studio space to make a bit of money and James is a bit of a stick in the mud and isn't happy about all this happening um, but through the softcore portos we're introduced to like a, a there's a great character named uh, uh, Viv that shows up um, she, with this uh, kind of short punky red hair who I really liked uh, we're introduced to um, um, we, we get to follow Anne around a bit, uh, a little bit as well, the cousin who got hypnotized. Um, she lives in kind of a boarding house. I believe Viv lives there as well, as along with another friend um, named Susie. Um, but the thing is with this movie is it just keeps, it's like a fucking giallo. It just keeps going into these like crazy murder sequences that are like super well staged. There's great music playing. They're gory, um, and it's just—it's just, it's just a, a lot of fun. And like some of the sequences, like I wish it's like I've never seen that before, which is pretty great. Like there was a, a sequence during a film shoot where like a light is precariously faced and some bad shit happens. There's a great uh, stabbing sequence with a, a woman who's wearing all white, which was pretty impressive. Yeah, like it really felt like I was watching an Italian movie, which um, I wasn't expecting from an English movie called Terror from 1978. Um, um, some pretty good actors in this, um, or pretty known actors in weird ways. Um, James Aubrey, uh, who plays Philip, who was um, the main character's business partner. He was ralph in the original lord of the flies the member the big box one mm -hmm. that we all watched in elmer in high school 
So he was that. So that was pretty interesting seeing him growing up. And uh, Trisha Walsh, who played um, the, the kind of girl with the punky red hair, she became this internet sensation. You can search her up, and she like basically outed her husband on YouTube videos, and she's like like batshit. So um, hmm. she has all these videos of her like calling out her husband for his cheating ways, and then there's then she's made like weird music videos about being crazy. <laughs> Look it up; it's pretty insane. So um, and she she really stole the show throughout this, uh, but yeah really big Italian influence in this I really enjoyed it it was super well paced a lot of great uh, murder scenes and then it went into this crazy supernatural uh, finale that included a car being levitated by a tree Um, yeah like everything (laughs) you're just watching this thing and you just don't know what's coming next and I love movies like that Um, so yeah I'd recommend this one too and a nice clean print another surprise from the mill creek and i actually got to watch it all the way through again so um yeah i mean between this and stanley man i'm super sold on the set um you can get terror in um i i'm not sure if vinegar syndrome put this one out they i know did. there's an they did they did yeah. okay and there's also the the, the uh, indicator put out a great box set of the norma j warren films but yeah i'm super into this director i, I i've loved both these movies quite a bit and uh, not what i was expecting at all so if you don't know this director i would recommend checking out his stuff for sure well when you were talking about this i grabbed my gorehouse great set which has stanley on it and it's also in that set <laughs> yeah so and that set's coming with me when I go away on vacation in the next couple of weeks. Oh, so yeah. I might watch both. <laughs> Not as good as Stanley, man, but it's still pretty fun. Well, I remember I watched a, I watched a trailer for Stanley after you talked about it, and I just I told you about the scene where the snake's just sitting on the chair beside him in his pickup. He's like, yeah. you stay here, Stanley. People don't understand. Nice rattlesnakes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, so and, and another great scene in this one is someone literally gets attacked by film reels, like uh, the film and spools, and like covers, like literally well, the guy's fun. covered, and it gets like suffocated and then gets decapitated. But it's pretty amazing, and it rumor has it that those were like um, unusable reels of Saturday Night Fever, which I thought was even funnier. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good one. So yeah, that's a good. It would be a good double bill with Stanley actually. Hmm. So good, yeah. I'm glad you're bringing that. I think I've gone through that whole set now. Possibly. Uh, yeah, I think I have. Oh uh, uh, no, no. You oh, have there's four more. There's twelve on there, right? Well, you have Primeval, Terrified, Trip with the Teacher, and uh, that you haven't talked about yet. No, I've done you're terrified. S- have you? Yeah. Oh yeah, you did. But you're skipping the Al Adamson ones, so yeah. Brain Twisters. Is that an Al Adamson one? No, it's a 1991 one. Oh, okay. Now so, my Al Adamson box set is shipped finally, too, so maybe when I'm done, the uh, Mill Creek will get into Al Adamson. Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh. Now. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm, right. I'm going to do one more here, just so you're not caught at the end. Um so I did another um, another 70s movie I watched. It's, this is a real classic that I've never gotten around to. And I picked up that Criterion Blu-ray. It's a movie called Night, uh, Don't Look Now from 1973, uh, directed by Nicholas Rogue. Um, this was his follow-up to Walkabout, which is uh, 
one of my one of my favorites of all time, probably top twenty. Um, have you seen Don't Look Now? No. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a blind spot for me, and I'm I'm not sure why I kind of hesitated for this long, but uh, but I did. So um, threw it on. I didn't really know much about this movie other than the infamous sex scene that. Uh, you know, for years and years, it's been a Hollywood urban legend that uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie really did it in the sex scene. And that's kind of what I've known about this movie. I've been really careful to avoid spoilers um, because I do know this is one of those twisty type movies. Um, and I've been, I succeeded. So I'm, I'm really happy that I uh, managed to go into this somewhat cool. Um, and I'll try and keep it that way for others who haven't uh, who haven't seen this before. Okay, so the movie opens with um, this this grieving couple. They're, they've just lost a child. We see that in the opening sequence where their little girl drowns in quite a horrifying sequence, actually. Um, but then the, most of the plot takes place six months later where they, um, they've gone to Venice where Sutherland's... Uh, that's where he's working. He's like a restorer of churches or statues. Uh, so he's gone there. Um, shortly after getting there... Um, they're in this restaurant and they um, meet this well christy's character uh meets this this couple who um she has an encounter with in the washroom and um it turns out that they've got like uh clairvoyant or esp type uh, uh qualities um where they're talking basically talking about that they've um they've been able to hear like her daughter and her daughter's happy and that kind of thing and of course Sutherland is like not having any of this so it's really playing on you know how two people deal with grief very differently Sutherland's in denial and wants to move on where Christie's trying to kind of hold on to the past um I don't really want to get into too much more because that's pretty much all I knew going in um, but what I will say about this is, um, yeah, I mean, this is a fantastically shot movie, um, and it's one of those movies that will end, and you will just not be able to stop thinking about it, and um, not in a bad way. You're not, like, trying to figure out what happened. It, you are in a way, but it's, like, wrapped up enough that you are satisfied, but it's one of those ones where you're thinking about it a lot. Like you're thinking about scenes from it and you're thinking about the performances and you're thinking about what different things meant, um, but not in a bad way where you're like frustrated. Like you're just, you're, you're just kind of, it's just an enjoyable, yeah, thought a movie that just really sticks with you. And I can see why this is such a classic, which it is. Like a lot of people have listed this on like, top British movie ever mm-hmm. made top horror movie list that's on there I mean I, I don't know if I'd even go so far as to call this a horror movie other than just a really moody kind of relationship drama I mean it's definitely got supernatural elements to it but it's not like a horror it's not like fucking terror right? Yeah. Um, um, but I love there's not a lot of movies shot in Venice um, so I love the location and just seeing how that all was I loved kind of, I loved the mystery about the movie. It is a pretty great mystery, and uh, you're not really you're you're trying you're following along with the characters, trying to understand what's happening, which is great. Uh, that sex scene is probably one of the best love scenes I've ever seen filmed. Uh, it is pretty graphic, but it's also the way it's shot. It's kind of basically what he's done is he's taking the sex scene and he's intercutting with like the after sex stuff, um, like you know that kind of happiness after. A, mm-hmm 
and it's really interesting the way he shot it. Um, Donald Sutherland, I don't know a lot about it about his work. I've you know seen him in a few movies, like you know, but you know he's mainly known for like the Hunger Games lately, and I remember him in Animal House, but I don't know. I think if I've seen a lot of his stuff, I've never seen Nash, and uh, I just he's one of those actors I've never I've seen way more of Kiefer's work than Donald's. Let's put it that way. He's he's good in Mash. Yeah, I'm sure he is. And then Julie Christie is another one. Like, I just don't know her stuff. I've never seen Demon Seed. I've never seen Dr. Zhivago. And I've never seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which are probably three of her, her biggest movies. But she was fantastic in this. Really, really kind of fell for her. And um, composer by, com- music composed by Pino Donaggio, who you've talked about recently. Um, one of Brian De Palma probably Brian De Palma's go-to composer uh, does the music for this um, but yeah it's just it's a really fucking solid movie and I always find it hard to review movies like this where you don't really want to talk about them too mm-hmm. much because you want people to discover them but I think anyone who has seen this knows exactly what I'm talking about and and appreciates the movie and uh, yeah it's definitely worth a look and uh, I'm so glad I, I didn't know much about it so if you've ever been curious about this movie I'd really recommend the Christ Criterion disc is awesome. I also know there's a UK disc that's um, like a three disc set with uh, with all kinds of extras and the soundtrack and everything like that. So that might be the one to look uh, check out. But uh, definitely one to one to watch. And I find that so funny that both of us have never seen this with it being such a classic. Yeah, it's just one that's always been on my radar, but I've never taken the the shot with it just because I've always been. It's one of those ones like. It's like you with kind of like with Rosemary's Baby in a way where you're just like it's one of those ones that's considered to be like a pinnacle of that kind of movie. And you're just so hesitant to watch it because you're like, I don't want I want that to be an option. Like, yeah, I'm just like I, I, I it's a worry of am I not going to like it as much as it as its reputation? And also, once I've seen it, I don't have that anticipation of seeing it anymore, yeah, basically. Exactly. So that's kind of the thing, because there's so many, there's so few actual, like, bonafide, like, classics out there that you don't want to burn them all up and be stuck watching fucking uh, direct-to-DVD sequels the rest of your life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. But, like, one thing I do like about, like, it's one of these ones I know I'll go back to it now. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll know I'll watch it a bunch of times. So um, I'm pleased about it that way. But yeah, you're right. There's just so few of these that we haven't seen. Um, it's 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 a real treat to, to find something this good nowadays and it be the first time and be able to go into it pretty cool. Well, and the thing is, too, I like Nicholas Rogue as a director. So yeah. I don't I also don't understand why I've kind of been hesitating. That might be part of it, too, because this is widely considered to be his best film. So maybe that's also a thing where I'm like, well, I like his other stuff I've seen. So if this is his best, maybe I should savor it and wait. Yeah. <laughs> so, so who knows? Who knows? Eventually. I still haven't seen the Godfather movies, you know. So eventually. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk. Speaking of movies that aren't very good, <laughs> seems to be a trend this this time for me. Um, this is a movie that I actually had no idea existed until I was browsing at my local record store in the soundtrack section, looking through the vinyl, just flipping through, and I saw 
this soundtrack. I'm like, I don't know what this movie is, but when I flipped it over and saw who was on the soundtrack, I bought the soundtrack. So I was like, okay, I don't know what this movie is. I'm going to buy this soundtrack because the soundtrack is rad. I still don't. I went home. I looked up the movie. I'm like, yeah, this has never been released on anything but VHS. Then one evening, TCM decided to play it as part of their TCM Underground. It's a movie from 1987 called Made in USA, um, starring Chris Penn, who I talked about recently in the Best of the Best sequels, and Adrian Pazdar are the leads. Um, and basically what they are, um, it's it's Penn with a really impressive perm, I gotta say, first off of the bat. He's got a really fucking impressive perm in this. Uh, they're just two pals living in this shitty mining town called Centrala, and we know it's a shitty mining town because it's got all these scenes that you see in these movies where everything's all boarded up. There's junk all over the streets, you know. The mine is where the only place where people can really work in this town. Like it's it's your basic, you know, mid America town that's dying basically um so while they're there you know they there's there's just like these thugs they just do whatever they want like you know there'll be a scene where they they walk into the laundromat and they like take off all their clothes to wash them and they walk around naked you know that's the kind of stuff they do because they don't they don't give a shit they're in this small town who cares right and then they decide, like, I'm sick of this town. I'm sick of my, my dad being an alcoholic. I'm sick of us just not going anywhere. A lot of this late 80s dissatisfaction that was on the forefront of a lot of movies around this time. Like, lots of movies. And um, I guess the Reagan the Reagan era wasn't very good for a lot of people in the 80s. Um, <laughs> so, so, so this was going on. So they're like, okay, that's it. We're leaving this town. We're going to make our way to California because – Chris's pen character sees a swimsuit model in a magazine. Is like, we're going to go to California and meet her. That's all they need to get out of this shitty town. Just like, we're going to go meet the swimsuit model in California. Let's go. So they start by stealing a car and taking off on the road. And from there, it becomes a really weird kind of David Lynchian road trip movie. So set pieces where they're, you know, they just keep, to continue their journey, basically when they run out of gas, they just steal another car and keep going. So, you know, they're like, okay, this car's done. Let's steal another car. And, and you know, they go – there's all these weird set pieces. And, and this is why I call it Lynchian is there's a scene where they're driving by this town. And it's a, it's a town that's got wire mesh fences around it. And it's saying – We've been poisoned. Deoxin ahead. Beware. And all this kind of like a Chernobyl kind of thing in mid-America where the government has used this chemical that has poisoned the whole town and nobody really lives there. And they're just going through this town and they while they're there, they pick up this girl who's like kind of a little bit off kilter played by Lori Singer. And she decides to tag along with them. So like it's just a weird scene. It's just like. They go there. There's all these abandoned houses. They sneak into one of the houses where there's a lady lying in the bed who's ill with like a ventilator mask, all this medication. And then Lori Singer comes home and's like, let's take off. I'll go with you. And I'm just like, what is like this scene is really strange and doesn't belong in this movie. Um, so it's really weird stuff. Um, there's a pretty great scene where there there's an RV that's that's towing a 
towing a car behind it on one of those trailers where they hot wire that car and like back it off the trailer and spin around in the middle of the road while the RV continues on. That's a pretty great moment. Um, there's a there's a scene where they steal an 18 wheel rig and you know the drivers of that rig are like get together a, a trucker lynch mob with their shotguns and their torches and everything. And I'm like this is going to be great. Nope, they don't do anything about a trucker lynch mob, which is unfortunate because that would have been great to see a bunch of like redneck truckers tracking them down. Why promise that and not deliver it? Like really, let's yeah. be honest. Like don't deliver that. And this the whole thing just felt very stream of consciousness where they were just like, what can we do to make this movie weird? What can we do to have a heavy handed anti-pollution pollution message and a message about how the government is poisoning us? The government's behind everything. It's so anti-government. And so they're poisoning us. They're poisoning us. They're poisoning us that it just kind of started to lose focus and and was trying way too hard to be have a political message but also be very weird at the same time and and it's because of that i can be like i could see why this movie is so obscure because it's messy it it's there's not enough fun in this i mean pen is okay uh pastar same year he was in near dark he's pretty yeah. good in this and then laurie singer not the greatest of actors actresses to to be truthful she wasn't in a lot of stuff but in this she's pretty good because she's just playing that like Un, unhinged kind of girl who you know falls for Pazdar and Penn's character is like so jealous of them through the whole movie so there's some stuff in here that's okay but like I said it just felt like the director was like we're just gonna go with it whatever happens when we're filming we're keeping in the movie that's what it felt like to me and <laughs> right. I, I I don't really like that like I'd like there to be a little bit more focus I mean it could have been a good idea I mean you've got Fucking Sonic Youth does the score for this movie. Oh, wow. Like, they did the musical score. They're on the soundtrack. Mojo Nixon's on the soundtrack. It's got a really great soundtrack. It's got... I like the opening scenes in, in uh, Centrala with the rundown town, but they didn't do enough with it, and they just went too weird that by by the hour mark, I was it had lost me because it was so messy. It didn't seem to know what it wanted to do. Um I can definitely see why I've never heard of this movie, and I yeah, can definitely never heard of it either. And I can definitely see why um, when I was looking at some of the trivia on this movie, the director Ken Friedman uh, had a disagreement with the producers about the finale, and uh, they fought about it for so long that he quit the movie in post in post production. The movie sat on the shelf for a year, and then the producer released it with his preferred ending so and the ending oh. is and the ending is fairly weird too it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the movie uh let's just say it involves a bank robbery and it's really strange it doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie either but that's kind of the thing nothing in this movie fits together and that's kind of why i didn't like it um Director Friedman is – this is one of the few things he directed, but I thought it was interesting when I looked into his filmography. He was actually one – he was the writer on such films as White Line Fever with Jan Michael Vincent, which you've talked about. Uh, Johnny Handsome, which is a really great Walter Hill, Mickey Rourke movie that I really love. Uh, Cadillac Man starring Robin Williams and Tim, Tim Robbins, which is a really good dark comedy. And Bad Girls, which is the 90s 
all female western with Drew Barrymore and Andy McDowell and stuff. So the guy has a lot of like writing credits that I really like, but this just didn't work. It's just like if I want to watch a David Lynch movie, I'll watch a fucking David Lynch movie. Like nobody can do his movies like he can. And this just is trying way too hard to do that. So yeah. Another failure. <laughs> so did you say that that movie took place in in a in a town called Centralia? Um Centralia, yeah. Cuz that's weird cuz that's like this town that's always fascinated me. Do you know do you know the lore about that town? No. Okay, so it's it's it, it it kind of fits with the plot, but it's this town in America. I think it's in like Pennsylvania. And underneath the town, there's a like a mine, a coal mine had caught on fire, and it's been burning since like the 60s. Oh really? So the whole town is now abandoned. Weekend, it's like it's like kind of like people call it like hell almost because it's like this town where underneath the town it's there's a fire burning so like the the um pavement is all cracked and there's like smoke coming up and bits of fire there's fire pits and it's this crazy place like if you look it up on the internet there's like all these insane pictures and it's pretty much abandoned now huh so i just think that's crazy if that's the same town that they i wonder if they shot there like it's nuts because it's slowly becoming abandoned i think there's like they're down to like five people but it's been on been on a few like you know like weird weird places episodes and shit like that but um i've looked it up on the internet a few times when like trying to plan like a you know a crazy u.s road trip like that's like up there with stall on my places to go right and salem (laughs) but uh yeah it's a really weird little town so if if that that would be weird if it's the same place but it's uh worth checking out if you're if you're a fan of those uh strange parts of the world well it is in pennsylvania and it is a mining town oh it must be yeah that's weird really weird yeah i've just never heard anyone bring that town up other than me so that's funny so yeah maybe made a movie there yeah so made in usa not not worth it (laughs) sorry all right (laughs) okay well let's go to a 1986 comedy Chris's favorite stuff. Um, this one was directed by Jeff Kenu. Okay. Chris's favorite director. Uh, it is? Who did. <laughs> he did Gotcha did Revenge Re- of the Nerds. He did. He did. He did. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a guy with uh, that's done two of the, you know, I, I liked Gotcha quite a bit, and Revenge of the Nerds, of course, is a classic, um, which I haven't seen in so long. Oh, my God. It's been 20 years, probably. I love Revenge But this was a movie. I know you do. Uh, this is a 1986 movie called Tough Guys. Oh, Tough Guys. Yeah. Never seen um, it. You never seen it? No. I, I liked it quite a bit when I was when I was young. Um, okay, so it opens with a really untough theme song by Kenny Rogers, which I thought was very bizarre because you're trying to make this movie. It's called Tough Guys, so I was expecting like a rock song, but it's kind of like this like lame ballad. Um, called like they don't make them like they used to or something as the camera pans over like nostalgia items and I was like oh this is not off to a good start anyway we're introduced to um, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster who were tough guys in their 
their uh, youth in their film careers. And this is kind of a fish-out-of-water tale about these two guys that have been in prison for, I think, 35 years, and they're, they've been released. They were in the same cell in prison. They robbed a, um, a famous train and got caught, got thrown in the joint, and now they're released. And it's kind of them, like, adapting to life in the 80s um, and, and getting old. Um, I mean, it's pretty funny, like, when they're released from prison, they're, like, still wearing their, like, gangster clothes from the, I guess it would be, like, the 50s, so they look like old-time gangsters you would see in an old noir movie, which I thought was pretty hilarious that they're walking around town like that. Uh, their parole officer, or probation officer, is played by Dana Carvey, in an early role from him. And um, they still look they still look pretty badass. And, um, you know, it's got the usual sequences of, you know, them realizing, like, you know, Douglas goes into his old bar and it's now a gay bar. And he's, like, trying to, you know, adapt to that. And there's another scene where they're walking down the street and a very 80s street gang, like, try, comes up and tries to mug them. And, and they're like, you know, there's rules to, you know, there's rules to street fight you kids. And they end, turn out, end up kicking the shit out of the gang, which I thought was pretty fun. Uh, Charles Durning is the um, police officer that put them in jail, and he's convinced that they're going to go back to their old ways, so he's kind of on their tail. Uh, but then something happens. Part of their parole is that they can't see each other for three years, so they have to kind of go their separate ways and miss each other. And, uh, yeah, Lancaster ends up falling for an old showgirl that he used to know, uh, played by Alexis Smith, Um from little girl who lives on the down the lane, and uh, Douglas ends up hooking up with, in a, a bizarro sequence, uh, he goes to a fitness club and ends up hooking up with Darlan Flugel, who um, you know she was a big deal at the time. We talked about her in the movie Freeway, but she was also in Running Scared and Pet Cemetery Two and To Live and Die in L.A. So big name at the time, and um, you know pretty hot in this movie as a little aerobics instructor. Anyway, she goes head over heels for Kirk Douglas, and inexplicably. But in probably the most memorable scene from this movie, um, he dresses up in, like, 80s clothes, and they end up going to a concert. Guess who's playing at the concert, Chris? Autograph. In L.A. in the 80s. Molly Crew. And you just talked about them, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, okay. So there's two movies recently that I didn't even know that these guys had ever been on screen in a concert. And uh, this is another club scene featuring the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the Hillel Slovak days. And I believe, what was, you, you watched, I think, what was that the one you watched? Thrashing from 86, Thrashen, same year. Yeah, and so Hillel Slovak was also in, in, in yeah. the band at that time as well. So this was like classic, like, uplift mafu party plan, yeah. freaky style era uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, or maybe even earlier. Um, so I thought that was a pretty fun scene. Um, they're being pursued also by Leon the Hitman, played by Eli Wallach from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And um, yeah. I really like the interplay between Douglas and um, and Lancaster. I don't know if they really were getting along that well. They had been in a bunch of movies in the past together, most notably um, Gunfight at the OK Corral, where um, I believe Lancaster played uh, Wyatt Earp and uh, Douglas played uh, Doc Holliday. Um, but I, I loved this movie as a kid. Um, I still think it holds up for what it is. I mean, it's, this isn't like in a change to the world or anything, but for a a movie about a couple of old guys like trying to adapt to the 80s. I thought it was pretty fun, um, but it's it's super hard 
story. I mean, there's nothing really vulgar going on here. It's just a just a kind of a good old fashioned like a little adventure comedy thing that I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Douglas doesn't embarrass himself like he did in Saturn Three. I mean, even though he is hooking up with a much younger woman, uh, you know that seemed to be his thing, and it was kind of believable. And at least at least the character kind of dealt with it with some dignity. Um, it's got that terrible song. Maybe sorry if you're a fan, but that fucking song by the fabulous Thunderbirds, "Tough Enough," that was also <laughs> in that Gun Ho, I believe. Oh man, I've always hated that song. Like it's it's probably like my that that kind of like white blues shit. It's like roots rock or whatever they call it. Oh, I fucking hate it. I mean, Springsteen's okay, but I hate that. Like, oh, I just I can't stand that that style and. Uh, Man, watching I watched the music video because I remember like that they were super lame. Stevie Ray Vaughan's brother played in uh, in the Fabulous Thunderbirds, and watching the video, it's so sexist. It's like them walking around, and there's like these female construction workers, scantily clad, like doing like construction behind them as they're singing about being tough enough. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's terrible, but holy! But the music video was like next level terrible. And um, I also know that that song isn't that the song that like Al Bundy like he used to work out to or something. <laughs> Maybe. Not, I, think, <laughs> I think I think that's why it's most famous, judging by the YouTube comments. But oh god, what a terrible song! Anyway, um, we also have Hilary Shapiro, who was um, quite memorable in Private Resort as the um, the um, the woman who um, was under the influence of like a yoga instructor and ended up taking off her, all her clothes with, with oh. Rob Morrow. Um, she, she's in this as a fast food or a restaurant owner. Um, yeah. And it's fun, you know, it was fun seeing Douglas like trying to get a job and failing miserably every time, you know, because he just doesn't want to put up with people's shit. And, and um, I, I liked it. And it ends up with, ends with a pretty decent action sequence. So if this is light, light comedy fare, but, uh, it was it, it's fun for what it is. I don't know if I'd recommend buying it, but I, it's it's worth a look for sure, if, especially if you're a fan of those two. I just gotta say, what '80s comedy doesn't have a gay bar in it? Let's be honest here. Oh my god, I know. It's like the go-to in '80s comedy. Let's throw in a gay bar. That will be funny. Please, Gabby, let's throw in a gay bar. Let's make it a running joke in seven of the entries. <laughs> you know. I, I don't understand. I don't know. I've never actually seen Tough Guys. Like, it's one that was always under my radar for some reason. And it was one of the ones put out by, like, Touchstone, which yeah. was, like, which was like Disney's attempt to, like, make more adult-themed movies. Like, they did Outrageous Fortune and Ruthless People and uh, Shoot to Kill with Sidney Poitier and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think Kino put this out on Blue, didn't they? Yeah, I, I picked up the Kino Blue. Yeah, I, I might I might borrow this off you one day just to like check it out once we finally are able to to see each other in person. Maybe I'll borrow it from you because I like Jeff Canoe as a director and it sounds like it could be mild amusement. Yeah, it's mildly amusing. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not it's just not. I don't know. I guess I'm just used to a lot of harder core stuff these days. So um but it's fun for fun for it, what it is. It's good-natured entertainment. It's it's good family entertainment. Yes. Oh, there we go. Family entertainment, except for the gay bar <laughs> and the old man hooking up with the. Oh yeah, I guess he's hooking up with her, and he can't. He has to leave because she wants to have sex all the time. So maybe it's not family entertainment. But I, I, 
I thought it was pretty funny when I was like 15. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Anyway, I, I liked Darla and Flugel quite a bit. Uh, um, I liked her in that Freeway movie as well, even though that movie was terrible. She really stood out, and I, I really noticed her in this as well. And I, I do remember her from To Live and Die in L.A. I haven't seen Tough Guy or um, Running Scared in forever. I don't know if she made an impression. I love Running Scared. <laughs> Did she make an impression, though? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, she, she died quite young of early-onset Alzheimer's, which is a terrible death diseased but uh anyways it was good to see her in this because uh yeah it's, it's it was fun for what it was yeah tough guys okay well <laughs> let's talk about uh, an, a direct-to-video effort from universal pictures uh this is from recent times uh you just made your way through the death race sequels and uh the writer of that is tony giglio and uh he wrote and directed this one and that's a movie called Doom Annihilation from 2019. Oh my god. So <laughs> why? So, uh, so so when I was a kid, Doom 2 was my computer drug of choice. I remember spending many many a day sitting in my room playing Doom 2 on my computer and shooting demons and hellspawn and you know all that kind of fun stuff. And I was like, yep, they made a Doom movie in 2005 starring The Rock and Carl Urban. It wasn't very good. Why are they trying to reboot it with Doom Annihilation? But I saw it in the bargain bin at Walmart. So I'm like, okay, I might as well pay the money and see what this is up. I regret that $5 <laughs> purchase. Um, so this is the thing. Right off the bat, this has sketchy CG effects. I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. Another one of those movies. And then we're introduced to a female soldier who's in stasis. Sounds like Ripley to you, doesn't it? Uh, Mm -hmm. Called Joan Dark. Another cool name for an action movie person. Played by Amy Manson. And it's such a video game name. And she's basically the Ripley of this movie. And, you know, so her and her crew are woken out of this deep sleep and the rest of the crew's joking around but they avoid her because in the past she did something that was bad and got them in trouble and got them demoted so they don't really like her that much and they end up going to this planet called phobos which is like basically it's a base on this meteor that's around mars and uh when they get there they're going to dock there's just generic metal playing on the soundtrack every single chance it gets and they land on They land on the base and they find dead bodies and it turns out that people have turned into zombies and there's also demons. So they spend the rest of the movie basically crawling down industrial hallways and monsters pop out at them and they shoot their machine guns. And I go, fuck, another one of these goddamn movies (laughs) where it's just the heroes in the hallway and the monsters run down the hallway in single file lines towards the heroes and they shoot them. Rinse, repeat for half a fucking hour. Let's do this thing. I fucking hate this shit. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I hate hallway movies. I've established that in the past. Doom Annihilation is a fucking hallway movie, okay? <laughs> like this is like the studio's like, oh, we're in Bucharest. Let's set up a let's set up a soundstage with a bunch of fake palm trees and like really bad looking industrial hallways, and we'll just have people. We'll have like locals who are take a time off from driving their cabs or whatever they do. We'll put them in some zombie makeup and have them run down a hallway at our at our actors, and they'll shoot guns at them. So I'm like, fuck, here we go. And the thing is, 
at least in the 2005 Doom, there was a really cool POV point of view sequence where he's where they're shooting the demons that was like the video games. This has none of that shit. Like Jiggly was like, okay, I'm gonna try and put in as many references to the Doom video game series I I can. Like one of the bodies we find has that has the name tag John Carmack, who was one of the co-creators of the Doom video game franchise. Oh, very witty. Um, and Joan Dark later in the movie finds the BFG, which stands for Big Fucking Gun, which was in the computer gate in the computer games, and she uses it a couple times in this movie too. But it's just her walking around. It's this guy called Winslow, played by Clayton Adams, who's this annoying Australian soldier who hates her guts. And then, you know, there's all these mutants and there's hallways and, you know, there's a scene where, oh, another video game reference where someone takes a chainsaw to one of the demons. And I'm just like, Louis Mandalore is here to fucking show up just to play a doctor. (laughs) And he's here for name recognition. And when Louis Mandalore is your name recognition, that's fucking sad. I'm sorry, but that's a sad, sad thing. At Uh, least they could have gotten Costas. Yeah, exactly. Like... This is just like has like Joanne Dark and her crew fighting demons. We have one character who's here just to cry and yell don't shoot numerous times and you know there's games references and I'm just like fuck this is painful. This is unwatchable and I'm just hate the entire fucking experience until the last 10 minutes. And this is a spoiler and I don't care if it's a spoiler. In the last 10 minutes they send Joan Dark to hell. And at least it felt like they were putting forth some effort in that last 10 minutes because there's a pretty good it's pretty good. It's it's a pretty good sequence of all the, the, you know, big rock formations around her and all the demons surrounding her and everything. That stuff's okay. I'm like, get rid of the fucking hallways that you've had them traversing (laughs) down for an hour and put them in hell. Much better movie. So this is this. Fuck this movie. Play the games. Fuck Doom Annihilation. I know you enjoyed the Death Race sequels. I don't know how this guy fucked up Doom so badly. Like <laughs> this is this is miserable. This is miserable. And I know people hate the 2005 Rock Doom, but this makes that movie look like a fucking supreme action movie. It really does. This wow. is this is awful, dude. Awful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I couldn't have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know how we are. Our curiosity gets the best of us sometimes, and I totally know. <laughs> I I saw it in a bargain bin. And I was like, okay, I could have used that five bucks to buy myself a Starbucks or something, and it probably would have been more enjoyable. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doom Annihilation. If All you right. want to claw, if you want to claw your eyes out, go for it. Otherwise, no, thank you. All right. Well, um, okay, I'm going to double up again. Um, just because I think you have one more. Yeah, I have so, one more. Okay. Okay, so um, I know I'm going to just sort of spring off. Um, Chris made a post on our Facebook page recently uh, just showcasing some um, some black horror movies. Um, so I thought I would uh, showcase a couple of uh, black directed dramas from the 70s that maybe not a lot of people know about I, some people have heard one of them a lot of people won't know about the other one so i'm going to start off with 1979's penitentiary uh directed oh. by jama fanaka 
who uh, was part of the L.A. Rebellion, which were a group of um, black L.A. filmmakers that uh, wanted to kind of break the mold of the stereotypes that were being put out by um, um, through the black exploitation movement of the 70s. Um, and I think he succeeded quite well in this movie. Uh, this is probably the most black exploitation of output from the LA rebellion which were a lot of those movies were more like art films or documentaries or dramas um, but this one still has like some action and nudity and some of the exploitation elements of, of the black exploitation movies but um, this was like a video store staple when we were growing up like every fucking video store seemed to have penitentiary yep. in it and probably penitentiary too well penitentiary um, too because Mr. T's in it <laughs> Mr. T's in it yeah but uh Vinegar Syndrome has recently uh, put out both of them on Blu-ray, um, so I did pick up the, I picked up both of them actually in one of their sales, and um, I've seen this a bunch of times. So um, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but I've not I've seen recently. This, yeah, I've probably seen this five or ten times because I do enjoy it. It's a, it's pretty much a boxy movie, even though it's called Penitentiary. It's pretty much a boxy movie. So it's about this guy named Too Sweet, uh, played by Leah and Isaac Kennedy. Up in prison for um, kind of a bogus reason. Um, he um, not a lot happens at the beginning. I mean, you do. It, it's a very kind of realistic depiction of prison, where it's a very small group of inmates, and they're all pretty fucking crazy. And it does show you the, you know, kind of the hierarchy and everything, and the danger. But it doesn't kind of oversell it like a lot of Hollywood movies do. It's just sort of there. He's there. There's these crazy people around him, and, and it's threatening. But it's not like built. It's it feels more slice of life than than a big built up kind of you know preconceived uh, you know kind of overhyped way that Hollywood movies seem to do it. Okay, so he's in there. Um, pretty soon, his cellmate named Half Dead. Uh, played by Baja Jola, uh, who's missing one teeth, tooth, and kind of look almost looks like a horror movie villain in some lights. And they do that these crazy extreme close-ups on him, and he's like smiling with his crazy missing tooth. He decides that he wants to get his way with Too Sweet in their cell. So this leads to this awesome fucking cell fight where the, the two of them are just going at each other, um, punching each other out, throwing each other into the walls, and it's pretty intense. Like and you know, you just and pretty violent, and you know, reading the trivia, like they didn't have stunt doubles. Like this is a low budget movie, so I I thought they really gave their all in this in this scene, and a pretty pretty outstanding fight scene. And then what that does is it leads people to realize that Two Sweets actually a pretty a pretty good fighter, and then they encourage him to join this boxing tournament that the prison guards are, it looks like the prison guards are are putting on for the inmates to fight it. Kind of like as a way to pass the time. The lead prison guard is played by Chuck Mitchell, aka Porky, nice. and uh, he he's actually a, a a pretty decent prison guard. He's not like a he's not like an asshole. He's like kind of trying to kind of trying to work with them to like do something positive, and that's what this boxing tournament does. And uh, yeah, it leads to you know a couple of good fights in the ring. Um, there's also all kinds of stuff going on. Um, in the bathrooms because they brought the like female prisoners from the adjoining prison to like cheer on the guys so you know as the fights are happening the uh, inmates are hooking up with the female prisoners (laughs) in the bathroom it's a pretty uh pretty um graphic scenes particularly one involving a woman named peaches played by gloria delaney um you know we've got the the lead 
the lead bad guy named Jesse, who's not really over, it's not overdone, but he's clearly the guy who's kind of running the show in the prison, who kind of him and Too Sweet don't get along. We've got the old guy named Seldom Seen that, that trains Too Sweet. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's just a good, a good little boxing movie. And um, I, I've enjoyed this one quite a bit. It was nice to see it all restored. And um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know a lot of people that have seen this, even though it was everywhere. But um, it's it's a good one. It's it's enjoyable and it's but it's not really a prison movie. So if you're looking for like it is, but it isn't. Like if you're looking for the prison movie where they're trying to break out of prison and there's like fights in the yard and white supremacists and all that shit that you usually see in prison movies, none of that's here. This is a it happens to be taking place in a prison. There's some of that stuff going on, but the focus of this is on Too Sweet and the the boxing tournament. So. But yeah, if you like if you like sports movies, it's definitely worth a look. I think the next two get a little more off the rails, particularly the third one. Um, but this is this is a you know a pretty pretty solid movie made by a black director with a mainly black cast. The second one I wanted to talk about is one from 1972 that I wasn't too aware of. Um, I know that uh, either Cold Red or Scorpion put out put it out, and it's called Top of the Heap. Um, directed by Christopher St. John, who was in... Uh, he had a supporting role in Shaft, and that's pretty much all I know of this guy. But he starred, wrote, directed this movie. And I've this never heard a, of it. No? no? Okay, so I um, was lucky enough, because it's pretty hard to get on physical media now. The uh, DVD's a little... Blu-ray's a little hard to come by. It is on Amazon Prime, though, so it's pretty easy to watch. Um, but it's about this um, this black cop named George Latimer, played by Christopher St. John. Uh, movie opens with this kind of uh, there's like this like riot scene. The cops are coming in to like bust shit up, um, and you know we're very reminiscent of what's going on right now in the world. Um, and you know Latimer's got a real chip on his shoulder. He's being passed over by for promotion. He's an angry cop. He's got like his, his daughter's like sleeping with this like Mexican guy, and his mom just died, and he's not in a happy relationship. He's sleeping with this other woman on the side. He's uh, his partner's a pretty decent guy, but Latimer is just a dick. Like he's just he's an asshole, like kind of everyone, and not someone you really want to get behind. But what, what, what's interesting about this movie is that it's, um, you know, every so often it will cut to, like, it'll, you'll be watching the cop story, and then all of a sudden it'll cut to, like, a different reality where he's, like, a, actually an astronaut and who's, like, the first guy on the moon. And it's showing, like, him, like, training to go to the moon and then being celebrated for being this first astronaut on the moon. And, I mean, clearly it doesn't take you long to put together that this guy's his grip on reality he's like trying to live in this fantasy world of this astronaut storyline while he's living this reality as this cop who's like having kind of a shitty life and um it really kind of grew on me at first i didn't really know what was going on but i i thought it was a pretty interesting take on how someone who was losing their grip on reality would function and would go into these fantasy sequences and then and be kind of back to it down to like the real world that they're living in and and be even grumpier about how shitty their life is um it's just, so obviously this isn't a big uplifting tale uh, but it's certainly a, an interesting tale to look at and obviously a very personal tale for saint john just because it was so 
uh, it, it is a weird movie and kind of a, obviously some sort of a passion project, but pretty impressive that this guy got this film made in 1972 uh, with, you know, a somewhat decent, decent cast. He had like Alan Garfield was in it, uh, who uh, has been in tons of shit from like the conversation to busting. And unfortunately, probably one of the first first actors that I know of that died of COVID um, recently. Uh, John Alderman, Patrick McVeigh, uh, G2 Kambuka, uh, all these guys are um, great character actors from the time period. Uh, we've got a Playboy playmate, Ingborg Sorensen, in a brief scene. Paula Kelly, the, the um, girlfriend of, of the lead character, simply known as Black Chick is her character name. Um, she was the lead in Trouble Man. Um, you probably well, you can very very briefly recognize June Fairchild as one of the people throwing a water balloon in the opening fight sequence. Uh, Chris, you'd know her as the uh, Ajax woman in Up in Smoke. Oh, oh, okay. But she was a, you know, she had a bit of a name for her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she had a bit of her name for herself at the time. Uh, Jerry Jones is in this, who was the writer of uh, Dolomite. Um, so yeah, I mean, he did manage to get a, a good uh, group of people together. Um, I thought the production value was quite well done. Um, I loved. I thought St. John did a great job of, of acting in this. Never mind the fact that he was directing it as well. Um, yeah, and uh, and it also featured a um, Richard Nixon lookalike named Richard M. Dixon, who I discovered ended up being in a porno called Presidential Peepers, which I thought was something really bizarre. I kind of I'm kind of curious about. Now, <laughs> maybe yeah, vinegar syndrome can put Nixon. that out. <laughs> maybe they have already. <laughs> but anyway, um, this is a really—it's a strange movie. It's um, not very well known, but it is—it's um, something interesting to check out. And if you're looking to check out, uh, you know, a movie by a black director in the early '70s, um, you know, because uh, there seems to be a lot of talk about that, and if, I'd encourage you to check this one out. It's very easy to see on Amazon Prime, and uh, I love finding shit I've never heard of, right? And uh, this was sitting sitting right there waiting for me. So, that's top of the heap from 1972, and like I said, you can get it on physical media, I believe, from Code Red, if you can find it. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of that movie in my lifetime, and it uh, sounds interesting. interesting. It's interesting, yeah. So, I might have to throw that on Prime one day. Um, I might as well finish off with an 80s comedy. Uh, and this is a movie where I, I love Walter Hill. I really do. But him taking on this job just seems not correct. This is such an ill fit for him. And that's a movie called Brewster's Millions from 1985. Um, he, it's a it's a remake of an often told story. It's been filmed numerous times in the past, like 19, in the in the 30s and 40s. There was versions of it. Uh, in this one, they brought in the writers of Trading Places to adapt it into a comedy, starring Richard Pryor and John Candy. And that's a duo I can get behind because I like both of them. But unfortunately, like I said, it's a, it's like they've toned down. Richard Pryor's antics to a PG rating. They've brought in a guy who's known for making action movies mostly and made him do this comedy that's got like noisy comedy and slapstick stuff. And I'm like, what's Walter Hill doing directing a slapstick scene? This doesn't seem right to me. Um, 
So basically, Pryor plays a minor league baseball pitcher called Montgomery Brewster. Uh, Candy is his wisecracking catcher. And, you know, they they're uh, we're introduced to them pl- playing a ball game where they have to stop the game in the middle of it because there's a train track running through the middle of the outfield and they have to stop so the train can go through. And then, you know, they end up winning the game. So they go up, it, they go to the bar after start hitting on girls and it leads to a bar brawl. And I'm like, OK, so far, so good. From there, Montgomery finds out he has a great uncle played by Hume Cronin of all people. Uh, who shows up in a video he's taken to this lawyer's office and he thinks he's going to be signed to the new york mets or the new york yankees but it turns out he's just found out that he's the uh long lost uh great nephew of hume cronin and hume cronin says this thing where he's like he's like yeah i bet you didn't know your great uncle was was a honky did you and i'm like oh 80s comedy they already yeah. mentioned the word honky. Um, so what he says is, I'm gonna you, I'm gonna give you an inheritance of three hundred million dollars, but in order for you to get that inheritance, I'm gonna give you thirty million dollars that you have to spend in thirty days, and by the end, you're not allowed to own anything. So you're not allowed to have any assets or any property, and you're also not allowed to tell anyone why you're spending this money. You can take $1 million now and be done with it, or you can try and do this and make $300 million in 30 days. So he's like, okay, I'll do it. So basically the rest of the movie is just prior figuring out ways to spend all the money, um, which leads to like, you know, a minor love interest with his accountant played by Lynette McKee, who's been in a few movies here and there. Her lawyer boyfriend spying on him to try and get these rival lawyers so that he'll default and they won't have to pay him the money. And then just like set pieces of him like, you know, getting into a cab and it's the Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov. Remember him? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's like this Russian guy. He's like, I'm going to give you $5,000 to be my personal driver for for a month or whatever. And Yakov Smirnov's like... I love America. What a country, which was his big tagline in his comedy mm-hmm. act. I'm like, oh, here we go. Uh, Rick Moranis shows up in this weird role at a party where he just mimics everyone. And that's the only scene he has in the entire movie. And it really <laughs> didn't fit in with anything. Um, they've toned down prior to a total PG rating. And they've put a really minor anti-wealth message to this. Like, you don't need to be rich to be happy kind of thing. But at the same time, I'm like, but if you don't need to be rich to be happy, why does he care about getting the three hundred million dollars by the end of the movie? If he doesn't, if you're trying to preach a message that it doesn't matter, why does it matter? You know, um, Candy's here; he's great, but again, kind of wasted in the best friend role. Because mm. I really, who doesn't love John Candy? Let's be honest; like everybody yeah. loves John Candy, and there's a reason for that. And He's just not given enough here. He just shows up every once in a while to be like goofy with Pryor. And, um, you know, of course, Pryor's schemes backfire. Characters are drifting in and out of the story. And then at the end, they decide to make it like this thing about they give this political angle where he's running for mayor, but he doesn't really want to be the mayor. So vote for none of the above. And we're going to play a three inning exhibition game against the Yankees with my old minor league ball team. And, Blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, 
why is Walter Hill directing this again? Can you remind me? And I'm like, oh, I get it. He's doing what Montgomery Brewster's doing in this movie. He's getting a payout. And that's why Walter Hill made this. It's a pretty mediocre, forgettable time, admittedly. Uh, It's a movie that I liked a lot more when I was young. Because when this came out, I would have been like 10 years old. So I did like it back then. But, I mean, I love Richard Pryor. Like I do. His stand, he's one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time. Like if you watch his Live on Sunset Strip or Live in Concert from 1979, this is a guy who was talking about some of the stuff that's going on even now. His 1979 Live in Concert uh, movie has him talking about how the police – about police brutality towards black people. And it really hasn't changed in the 40 years since that's come out. So, like, this guy was ahead of his time. He understood what it was like to be a black, you know, person living in America. But he was, like, super funny at the same time. I just find his movies are so inconsistent. That's my main problem with him. It's like, you have good ones. Like, um, you know, like, I like Stir Crazy. I like Silver Streak. I like the early stuff he did with Gene Wilder. I liked Bustin' Loose, which we talked. To, I talked about recently. I mm-hmm. thought that was pretty good. But I just find like in the late '80s when he was doing like Brewster's Millions and Critical Condition and right. stuff like that, he just seemed to have lost that edge that he had a little bit. I mean, even even though I like um, even though I like moving, it's again a toned down Richard Pryor. In yeah. that would be from 1988. And and that's what the problem with this is. Like, the guy, like, Trading Places is a great comedy, but it's, like, got raunchiness in it. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis taking her top off. It's got Eddie Murphy doing, like, like rants that are, like, about, like, being stereotyped as a black guy. And it's an R-rated movie. It deserves its R rating. This is those two writers doing a PG movie, and they just can't pull it off. Yeah. They just can't. So, um... I didn't dislike it completely, but I just I don't I, I it's just one of those ones that's kind of like a footnote for me when it comes to both John Candy and Richard Pryor movies, unfortunately. And it's definitely bizarre because of Walter Hill made it. Yeah. Like the guy made the Warriors. How yeah. did he make Brewster's Millions? <laughs> like seriously. Like have yeah, you seen this? Really weird. I have seen it not for a long time. I've always liked the premise. Yeah, but, uh, I don't remember it at all. I mean, all those prior movies, I, I, I need to revisit. The only ones I really remember, and I don't really remember, are the toy and moving. Yeah, and the toy is is not good. But I I am revisiting the toy soon because I just got the DVD of it recently. So we'll hear about that sometime in the next few episodes, I think. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but but yeah, Brewster's Millions is kind of like I don't. It's another one of those movies, much like. Um, Joel Schumacher won a uh, Incredible Shrinking Woman, where I'm like, okay, okay, Show Factory, you got the rights from Universal for these movies. Do they really have to come out on Blu-ray under your Shout Select banner? Probably right. not. Is so, that what this is? Yeah, it just Shout got Select. Oh it just God. got released under Shout Select. I just have the old. I just have the Universal Blu-ray that, that was yeah. out prior, and that's if you're a fan of this movie, that's perfectly acceptable for what you want. But uh, yeah. I mean, I, I if you want to watch a Richard Pryor movie, I definitely would say go with an earlier one than this. Like, even go with, like, Car Wash. Even though he's not in Car Wash that much, he's good in Car Wash. And that Which Way is Up, that which you talked about, is is 
probably better than this as well. Yeah. So yeah, Brewster's Millions. Soft, right. soft recommend, but not really. If prior completists only is what. Another I'm light, another light comedy. Was that from the eighties as well? Eighty-five. Yeah, another light eighties comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Flash's Beatrice Adventures. Okay. Um. This is one I I really shouldn't have watched on VHS. I really feel like I should have watched this on Blu-ray. Um. <laughs> But I've always Blu-ray? been curious about this. I don't. Oh, okay. But I've always, I've always been curious about this movie, and I did see it at a, um, at a value village, and I was like, oh, okay, well, and it was, it was still in its wrapping, and I'm like, the oh, VHS you know, was? yeah, it was still Ooh, sealed. sealed. Mo money, mo money, yeah. mo money. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'll just, I'll buy it, because I, I just, you know, it could go either way, and. Uh, um, anyway, it's a, it's a 1968 movie called Hellfighters. Um, it's uh, directed by Andrew McLachlan. Is it, is um, this the John Wayne firefighter movie? Yes. Yeah, I have Wayne the Blu-ray of this. Oh, nice. Well, I bought it for five bucks. Being... <laughs> really? Yeah. Why did you buy it? Does it, it was like a, something I, you'd buy? I was at Best Buy and I saw it in a $5 bin. I was like, okay. <laughs> nice. Well, I kind of wish I'd watched the Blu-ray because it certainly looked like it's it's scope, and I think I lost. And the the print on the VHS was pretty shitty. But anyway, Andrew McLaughlin gave us um, he's directed Wild Geese, uh, Folks, and uh, Mitchell. The uh, oh, uh, oh I thought you were stuttering uh, there for a minute, but it's for folks. For folks and <laughs> and the Joe Don Baker uh, cop movie Mitchell that's been. Uh, much maligned, but uh, I bet you it's not nearly as bad as people say. Anyway, um, yes, this is a John Wayne Wayne Hill um, firefighter movie, uh, which I, you know, I I know John Wayne is either a cop or sorry a, um, a fucking cowboy or a army dude, right? Like pretty much everything he's, he's been in, I know he a made cop. a few made a few cop movies, but generally speaking, when I think John Wayne, I think cowboy or army guy. So, um, but, you know, in this movie, he's playing a loosely based on a, re- a real character named Red Adair, who was a, um, who put, puts out oil fires. And um, he was, like, Red Adair is the guy who, remember when they were lit all those fires in Kuwait back in the, like, late 80s? Red Adair went in and helped put those all out. I remember, I still remember the images of seeing those on, on the news, like, fires. And oil fires are particularly scary because what it is is an oil well. Like the opening scene of this movie has, has like an oil well, you know, whatever blowing up or whatever, like the like the Beverly Hillbillies or whatever. And then as some as the workers are like trying to like deal with the oil well, one of their hard hats hits a light bulb and ignites the oil well. And when an oil well is like shooting up and then catches on fire, it can't you can't put it out like just think of that like it's like this inferno that's just never ending right and um you know after watching this movie being fed by oil so i learned from this movie that the way you put those out is you have to um you have to basically take a crate of nitroglycerin and put it into the middle of the fire and then blow it up and then that it um, gets rid of all the oxygen so you can cap the oil so it's pretty neat right like and and i like 
firefighter movies. There's not enough of them. This is another subgenre that I just don't understand why there's not like 500 fire fireman movies. There's a bazillion cop movies, but there's only a handful of firefighter movies. Like there's Backdraft, and I don't know if I can think of them. Ladder 49, like I don't know. Yeah, and, <laughs> and there's one called Firehouse with uh, Fred Williamson from the 70s, I think. That was a TV movie. Yeah, like there's just not very many, and it's and there's that firefighter with Nancy McKeon. Like, there's a few, but it's not like yeah, it just feels like there should be more, especially big budget ones. Like it just seems kind of like kind of a perfect thing to be, but maybe it's just too hard to deal with fire. I don't know. Anyway, it's pretty impressive the way these these things happen, and we get a number of a number of oil fires in this. There's like the opening scene one. There's um there's a um another one that happens and there's this chemical one where it's like shooting up poison so they can't if you get within a certain radius you can be killed by the um by the poison that's coming out and i thought i thought that was pretty neat um and uh a lot of danger and they have to wear gas masks and stuff and then the finale takes place in venezuela where um they're trying to put out um basically rebels have like lit a whole bunch of of um of oil things on fire so there's like a multiple fires burning so they have to figure out how to put out these fires while also dealing with these gorillas that are like coming in like not gorillas like oh but gorillas <laughs> like but gorillas like you know gorilla warfare guys that so, would have like, made it a like, much different movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like the rebel the re- like these rebels are like coming in and trying to like go against the army and like make start the fires again so they're dealing with being shot at while also trying to put out these simultaneous fires so a lot of really cool fire action in this um i thought john i mean i've i've I like john wayne and most of the stuff i don't you know like his politics but i do like um most of the stuff he's in even though he's always kind of the same character every time like he doesn't have in my opinion he hasn't had a lot of range in the ones that i've seen i've probably seen like 10 john wayne movies and he's always somewhat similar but you know he is what he is you kind of know what you're getting in a john wayne movie uh catherine ross plays um daughter tish um this was right between the graduate and butch cassidy and the sundance kids so this was like kind of like probably catherine ross's peak um i've always thought she was completely beautiful and um uh, kind of a treat to see her in something i haven't seen before um Vera Miles from um Psycho and um uh, uh she was also in well, the Searchers of course and she was also in that 70s TV movie Fire so she seems to like fire movies but she plays uh John Wayne's ex and like a love interest and then we've also got Jim Hutton playing um John's protege who uh falls for his daughter um and uh Jim Hutton is of course timothy hutton's father and uh was in a few other movies with with john wayne uh bruce cabot also shows up and i always get excited because bruce cabot was probably one of my first heroes he was john driscoll in the original king kong and um you know whenever he pops up in like a 60s or 70s movie i'm always pretty excited because like this is one of like my guys when i was a kid you know grown up and still acting you know that much later which i always think is cool and he's always 
he always kind of is kind of cool in everything he does. Um, they go all over the world. I mean, I don't know if they really did, but the movie does take place in everywhere. You know, it's in Venezuela. Then I think they were in China for part of it. And then they're in America for part of it. They go to Canada, even. They go to Calgary to put out a fire. So um, it was pretty fun. Um, it's got a whole bunch of act, like a bunch of these actors were also in the Green Berets, which was in the year before. And I think it was a movie that wasn't well received. But John Wayne was in that, Tim Hutton, and, or um, sorry, Jim Hutton, uh, Bruce Cabot was in that, as well as Edward Faulkner, who are all in this. Um, but I enjoyed this quite a bit. Um, but like I said, you know, this is a, definitely a time we're watching a VHS tape that's kind of washed out, even though it was brand new. Like it's really, you really notice vhs when you take it out of the wrapper and it looks fucking old and watched out <laughs> yeah. and I think that's what happened here and then then when i realized this movie was shot in scope i'm like oh man i'm probably really missing this so i think this would look really good on blu-ray um i feel like you know this has been kind of a mixed there's kind of a mixed reception to this movie i liked it quite a bit i mean some people are kind of bored by it but how the fuck do you get bored at putting out oil fires um, like there's, you know, there's this is a good old fashioned adventure drama. It's not a, this isn't an exploitation movie. There's no gore. There's no nudity. Uh, it's just a bunch of guys trying to put out fires. And I, I, I like fire movies. I like, I like John Wayne stuff. Um, and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But I, I would rather have seen it on that Blu-ray that you've got. So it's it's not going to survive in my house as a VHS tape, but uh, I'll probably check this out again. Um, I don't know if I'd buy it. Well, if I found it five bucks for Best Buy, I certainly would. But but I would certainly check it out on uh, on streaming or something if I saw a nice widescreen print of it. I think it would look great. But it's it's a fun little movie. Clips along. It's just over two hours. Didn't feel like it at all. And I like the inter. I liked Vera Miles. I thought she was a great. Uh, a great kind of love interest for him. Catherine Ross, I think, hated this movie, um, but she does well. I don't know why she hated it so much, but uh, I think she basically thought it was a piece of shit. But I guess when you're between The Graduate and uh, Butch and Sundance, probably most things are going to be, <laughs> you know. So, um, but yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty fun, and I, I do wish there was more firefighter movies. So that's Hellfighters from 1968. I think it's still available on Best Buy online for five bucks, Josh. <laughs> oh, don't enable me, man. <laughs> I mean, let's let's put it this way: I pick up a, I don't need a special edition of this. It's not that kind of movie. But a five dollar Blu-ray, I'd, I'd buy that and watch it again in a few years for sure. Yeah, I've got a handful of like John Wayne stuff that I've bought on Blu-ray, just like just to have because I'm not overly familiar with him. Like I know true grit and stuff like that, but I mean, I got Brannigan, which is one of his cop movies and I have this Hellfighters, which I haven't seen yet, which I've never seen. And like Donovan's reef, he was just for like one of those guys who was like supposed to be like the macho cool hero back then. Like he was kind of like, he was kind of like the version of Liam Neeson that we have now, basically. So, I mean, I, but I'm not overly familiar with him, to be honest. I just know that he is one of those guys who has, like, stereotypes attached to him. Like, oh, yeah, this is a John Wayne movie. He just does this, 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 and this. That's how you know it's one of his. So, yeah. Yeah, he always talks the same. I mean, I don't know. Like, I've I've seen, like I said, a few. I mean, I Rio Bravo is obviously really good. I mean, it's one of John Carpenter's favorite movies. 
It's it's really good. I mean, I I I'm not on the searchers bandwagon like a lot of people are. It, it was it's okay, but it's it's certainly not like a favorite of mine. Um, uh, you know, I've seen Sands of Iwo Jima. I think that one's pretty fun. I want to see more of his stuff, but there's so many. I mean, the guy made yeah. so many movies. It's yeah. insane. Like when you start looking at it, he's probably made a hundred movies. Yeah, the one I want to see is called The Cowboys, which I have on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. which is where he's like, uh, he's like a a hardened like cowboy who has to like train a, a a bunch of youths on how to be cowboys. I always thought that sounded like it'd be a fun time. Nice. And another really good one from him is The Shootist. And uh, I think it's directed by Don Siegel. And uh, he's like an aging gunfighter who has to do like one last battle. That was a really good one, too. So he's he's definitely, and I think he might have won an Oscar for that one. But he's hmm. he's done some good ones and he's done some okay ones. And uh, um, But he's, he's, I don't know, I, I, I feel like he's kind of being lost in as, as time marches on, you know? Like, other than the caricature of him, I don't think a lot of people are going back and checking out his stuff. And I fully agree with you. I want more firefighter movies. There really needs to be. Like, the the last big one was Backdraft. Is that that really true? Like, Ladder 49? I think Ladder 49 came out after Backdraft. Which I never saw. I really loved Rescue Me, if you ever want to check out a good firefighter TV show. Rescue Me is awesome with Dennis Leary. But yeah, there's just not enough firefighter movies. Well, I know last year or the year before they did a direct-to-DVD sequel to Backdraft, Josh. Oh, yes, I know. know. Good old Universal Pictures strikes again. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll have to check that out to fill fill the void. Maybe. Alright, so that is Hellfighters. Yep. Josh's Features Adventures! Okay, well, we've come to the end of another Skype problem-filled episode. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never know, though. (laughs) Well, you might know it, because sometimes a little bit of the quirks and quarps and quarps come into it, like a little bit of the computer stuff that I can't edit out does show up. But uh, in the meantime, how about you go to our Facebook group, and join a discussion. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GBW Podcast. And most importantly, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all that stuff. Uh, most importantly, if you like the show, tell a friend and spread the word. Okay, good night, everybody.